CBS Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family. The Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and, of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two-Star Recruits. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino. And as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, I decided to do a little bit of a throwback to our kind of early intros for this podcast. So I had to call you my podcasting partner in crime. Last episode, we started off on an interesting note because I broke the mic before we recorded. Shout out to Ryan for fixing the mic so I no longer have to balance my microphone on this table and hope it does not fall. So we're already off to a better start than we were last week, Gerard. Already implicating me in a crime before we even start. I said nothing of the sort. I was just letting you know that I broke it. Crime. Some crime happened and I was your partner and I'm implicated now. Guilty by association. You were not. I did not call you my podcasting partner in crime last episode. Specifically because I did not want to implicate you in this uh, vandalism that occurred in Ryan's studio, so I, I was looking out for you. I was looking out for you, Gerard. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't call you that. I didn't call you that. But you did this week, and this week we don't have a ton of talking points about recruiting. And then some people would say that uh, there's not a lot of positive things that we could say about recruiting. So again, being implicated in the negativity, we're we're already setting ourselves up. For failure and blame in the opening of the podcast this week. Well, that's actually one reason why, despite not a ton of things happening on the recruiting sense for USC, we were not going to take a week off because last time we took a week off in the season, USC went and lost to Utah. So then there was this whole thing like it's because the Cilantro Boys did not do a podcast that week. We were the reason, Gerard, that we got the blame, obviously, until they uh, lost at the end of the season to disprove the curse, but we we don't have that knowledge in this season because we can't take the risk and take a week off, Gerard, despite there not being a ton of recruiting things to talk about. We couldn't risk that. If we were going to take a week off during the season and it's not a bye week, this probably should have been the week because I don't think us taking a week off is going to change the outcome of the game against Arizona State, having watched Arizona State. But I'm sure we're going to talk about that maybe a little later in the podcast absolutely we do have some things to talk about gerard you do have your updated target list there was a little bit of recruiting morsel of news and that usc offered a new 2024 prospect like 
an hour and a half ago while I was driving into the studio. So we added that. We are going to go over the round six of our draft class because we always throw those in there when it's kind of a slow week. Friday Night Lights, as you mentioned, we'll talk about Arizona State. What happened in college football week three as we could watch more college football with that bye week. And we do have a, a good amount of questions. So we do have some things to talk about. And obviously, before we jump into the cold open, a quick shout out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. You know her, you love her. The number one real estate agent in Los Angeles, Meredith Schlosser, with over $600 million in sales. That's some serious money. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And make sure you check out and follow her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate to see all the listings that she has coming and goings of postings she has up there. So go check her out at Meredith Real Estate on Instagram so you don't miss a thing. Gerard, cold open. It's not the uh, the most sizzling of cold opens, but you did put in a lot of hard work for the updated target list for 2025 and 2024. I'm assuming because we had the bye week, you had some time to go ahead and crank those out. And those are a VIP piece on ubspeople.com. So you can sign up and get the full detailed breakdown. So we're not going to give you everything here, but we did. We do like to take a, a moment to kind of let Gerard talk about what's going on in his updated target list. So Gerard, where do you want to start? 2024 or 2025? Yeah, we have to go uh, with the 2024 class. Obviously, that is the most important class for Trojan fans right now. That's the class that's going to be signing in December. And so we kind of looked at it and, you know, not a whole lot of movement with the 2024 class. Not a lot of movers and shakers. I think, uh, you know, in terms of interest levels, we haven't seen a big move for many players right now. I think uh, Ephraim Asiata, the linebacker, out of Harriman, Utah, who just officially visited USC for the Stanford game. He gets bumped up to uh, high interest and is a guy that we're looking right now as potentially a will linebacker for USC. Then USC made a really big move for him. Uh, still some confidence there. He's going to stay home and go to Utah. Uh, we talked a little bit about his official visit and sort of a status check on his recruitment last weekend. Not a whole lot to add to that. I do think that from one aspect, everything that he's gone through, and to recap for those who maybe missed that in uh, the war room and subsequently the podcast last week, he ended up getting shot in a situation uh, when he was, I believe he was a freshman um, in high school. He and two other individuals he was with, those two individuals passed away, and Ephraim ended up in critical condition and uh, had a long recovery, but was able to recover from his injuries and has been playing and got a scholarship offer from USC, um, you know, not too long ago it was really through the May evaluation process that USC went up there and saw him and uh, liked what they saw from his progress and kind of what he was doing. A linebacker that really plays more as a defensive end, sort of stand-up linebacker at the line of scrimmage, hasn't played a lot off the line, and there's not a lot of film on him, unfortunately, and for some obvious reasons. And so from an evaluation standpoint, it's kind of hard to peg where he goes, but uh, you do have the bloodlines there, you know, with his father, Matt, having played in the NFL um, and been kind of a backup for Adrian Peterson there and had some good years with the Vikings. 
And so you do like that there's that uh, ceiling, you know, that may be a little higher for him. Uh, and, and certainly family-wise, he's had some really great athletes come through the family. So the potential is definitely there as a player. Again, going back to the official visit itself, I think you kind of have two, edge to, two edges to the same sword. In one hand, I think that USC, the education, the degree, the networking, life away from football is definitely an impactful factor within his recruitment. Why? Because he didn't have football. He was looking uh, at potentially never playing again, had to go through a lot, and had to watch football a lot. So he, unlike maybe some other prospects, doesn't have necessarily that perspective of what it's like to have football taken away from you. And that can happen at the blink of an eye. And it doesn't have to be an incident that happens off field. It can be on the field. And so I think he has maybe a better appreciation for that. His family probably has a good appreciation for that. At the same time, I think there's always that, oh, you know, do you want to go to L.A.? Do you want to go to South Central? And certainly there is some narrative there uh, for negative recruiting and people getting in his ear and, you know, giving him the you want to stay close to home, you want to stay close to your family, um, et cetera, even though obviously this incident did not happen in Los Angeles. It happened when he was home. So this is uh, one of those things that, you know, you're trying to weigh pros and cons and there's various different negative and positive narratives that come from various, not just coaching staffs. It's really sort of laundered negativity that you usually get where, you know, uh, coaching staff will sort of get in somebody's ear that's close to him. And then if that particular individual has maybe, you know, your best interests at heart, you know, they happen to be a Ute fan. They happen to be a Duck fan. They happen to be to be someone who's really big on USC, was a USC fan. You know, that's part of the recruiting process is, is identifying the champion, which in each recruitment circle, and then you have somebody who has maybe that direct contact with the recruit, and they're able to sort of, you know, have some influence. So that's kind of where we see those things sort of pop up a little bit. So I think that's, you know, something that right now is being processed and working through that. And, um, you know, we'll see. There's been no real date given uh, for an announcement. Uh, he's still going through the process a little bit. And, you know, he's really gone through the process later than a lot of recruits for obvious reasons. So um, he does get moved up there. I mean, I think right now it's a Utah SC battle for sure. And uh, it's hard to call, you know, what school really like leads right now. Um, but that's why he gets bumped up to having uh, the high interest, which is, you know, one of the few recruits that really there was any kind of change there. Um, Elijah Gordon, you know, high interest in USC. We talked a little bit about him as well. And, you know, schools liking him, but kind of putting him on the back burner a little bit, uh, trying to kind of figure out where their boards are. And I think just wanting to get more film of him. I think that's a big deal. And certainly with USC, you know, the linebacker position, there were some ads there uh, over the summer where you had Michael Boganowski, you had Devin Smith. That's the one position out of all these positions where USC is actually kind of pushed forward with new scholarship offers. You know, we know that they struck out um, at running back with Taylor Tatum, and yet we didn't see any subsequent scholarship offers go out uh, from that. Uh, receiver, same thing. You know, they don't get Draylon Smith and um, – or excuse me, Draylon Miller and Brian Wesco 
And both those players, uh, guys that they recruited hard, we know that they wanted three. Mike Matthews was another wide receiver uh, out of Georgia Parkview that they recruited pretty hard and struck out on all those players. Yet we did not see any additions to the target list for scholarship offers at that position. Same thing with the offensive line. So you get the decommitted commitment of Manasi Atete from uh, up in uh, Modesto, and he was really kind of the marquee player that they had committed at the offensive line. There's been really no movement at the offensive line in terms of going to go after new players, trying to get uh, new guys on uh, the scholarship offer kind of target um, crosshairs. And so that tells us that USC is really kind of doubling down on some of the guys they've already offered, they already recruited. And decommitment season is really the only thing that's going to change whether this is going to be a top 10 class in 2024 for USC or not. So, you know, last year, they didn't really make many moves with many players, um, despite an 11-win season. And I know a lot of Trojan fans were confused by that because they're used to USC winning 11 games, double digits, and wins, it translating on the recruiting field. Now, we've talked about that a little bit, uh, where, you know, USC has not been very good for so long that it's a little harder to just turn it around in the blink of an eye. This year, though you have everybody kind of aware and on alert to watch USC and these recruits specifically, they saw USC win a bunch of games last year, obviously didn't end the season the way they wanted, but still really a quick turnaround. And now you're not recruiting off of faith. You're recruiting off of a proven commodity. And so things should be easier and you should with your product on the field, be able to recruit better. That, I think is going to happen here in the next month. We're going to know whether USC is going to make some moves with some of these guys that have committed to other schools that have gone on uh, during the summer and decided not to go to USC, whether they can get them back in the mix. If you don't know over the next four or five weeks, whether some of these guys are going to end up back on campus for unofficial visits. And that's really going to be the ultimate sign, you know, that they're still interested or there's communication or there's some decommitments. There has to be some movement there among the guys that are already committed elsewhere, because there's not enough targets in the 2024 class that are uncommitted to really move the needle here for the recruiting class. You've got very few guys. You've got like a Jericho Johnson, uh, the big 6'4", 300-pound defensive tackle out of Fairfield, uh, California, a guy that USC should get on campus for an official visit. But there's only you know him and maybe a couple other guys that you can argue that are uncommitted that could still commit that would help USC enough. But I think from a quantity standpoint, it's not enough. You're going to have to flip some commits to make the 2024 class actually get to that point where you could start to say, okay, this is a special class or this is a really good class. Right now, it's a mediocre class for USC, uh, just to be completely blunt. Um, outside the top 10, that's not the range that you expect USC to be in if USC is you know, putting together – uh, bowl wins and they're competing for conference championships and they're a top 10 team. Really, the reflection needs to be where USC is in the rankings on the field. You would expect for them to be on the recruiting trail with the recruiting rankings. Gerard, I'm going to dip a little bit early into our listener questions because we had some questions that centered around your target list. So I just figured we should move them up here for the cold open as we talk about your target list. So the first one, and they come from D from Central Valley, who was a constant two-question asker. We appreciate that. D, his first question for your 2024 target list, which you were just talking about. You had two arrows up for two running backs. 
Derek McFall, and Christian Clark. Do you think USC is still pursuing? I've heard there's still some contact there, but it's hard to know if it's serious contact and if it's not just the acknowledgement of, hey, you know, we'd like you to come in and see a couple games. We talked about this last week. Games are not necessarily indicative of how hard USC is recruiting a particular player. If a player has been recruited by USC at all and the parameters of which you would say a recruit is actually a recruit, a target is, you know, they've had direct contact with the coaching staff and have a scholarship offer. Now that's a pretty low bar these days. Scholarship offers don't mean much and contact once upon a time certainly doesn't mean much yet. That's kind of the list that gets the free tickets to go to the to go to games. So you see with a lot of local players, guys pop up at games and you can follow up with those players. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm interested in USC. It's like, well, how much contact have you had with USC lately? And then it's like, "Eh, not really a lot. Like I talked to some staff member, blah, blah, blah. It's not very specific. and You kind of get the vibe. Okay. This is not a recruit that USC is hard after. So that's a little harder to figure out, to gauge. I think with both of those recruits, there's just that potential of being able to get them on campus. We know Dirk McFall, he's a huge USC fan, grew up uh, loving Reggie Bush, um, ended up committing to UCLA just because he liked Southern California so much. And so there was always that possibility. And USC had recruited him. They would not given him a scholarship offer, though. That was the big thing. And I was told from a pretty good source, USC was kind of slow playing that scholarship offer because they felt like if they offered him, he'd commit on the spot. So obviously USC had the reservations and they weren't 100% sure, but that's been across the board at the running back position. You know, we haven't seen, again, any new scholarship offers at running back. And that just might be a product of, okay, let's see the first four or five games of their senior seasons, get that film, get it in front of Lincoln Riley and figure out if we want to really go after somebody harder than maybe we were during the summer. And you obviously have to balance that and negotiate with the fact that you did, you know, sort of you kind of uh, had a food chain, a pecking order during the summer at running back, which we had talked about quite a bit because it came back to us through the mouths of the other running back recruits that USC had been targeting and stopped targeting, whether it was Nate Frazier or Jason Brown. Everybody talked about Taylor Tatum being USC's number guy number one guy. And yet, you know, USC misses out on Taylor Tatum. Well, now you've got to pivot and go after some guys that knew they were not your number one guy and nobody wants to be the number two guy. So that in itself is something, an obstacle that you kind of have to negotiate a bit. And then of course there's the portal in the last two cycles, USC has been able to get running backs out of the transfer portal And they've been good players for USC. Travis Dye was a very good player for USC. He contributed a lot. Right now we're seeing Marshawn Lloyd. He looks like he is a very good addition to the team at the running back position, pairing with Austin Jones and the two freshmen that they have on the team. So they do have a running back committed in Brian Jackson, who has not played much this year, got hurt in the first half of the first game for McKinney and is uh, supposed to come back from what we believe is a, was a dislocated elbow, I believe um, you said, Chris. Mm-hmm. And so he should be able to get back on the field. 
Uh, but it did look like at least during the summer, USC wanted to take two running backs and they had offered, you know, quite a few guys. They had a few offers out there, but it became uh, clear that at some point they wanted to make Taylor Tatum the guy. And they kind of uh, ignored some of those other running backs. Christian Clark was uh, scheduled to take an official visit to USC in May. And that visit was canceled, which I understand at that point. I think you wanted to see how things played out with Taylor Tatum. It's just unfortunate that you kind of scheduled the visit and then decided to cancel the visit. What you'd rather do is just not have that visit scheduled at all and just sort of, you know, play it by ear with Taylor Tatum, get him on campus as soon as you could. And then you make a read off that and say, okay, now we can bring Christian Clark in maybe, you know, the 16th weekend or maybe the last weekend, which is always sort of that, you know, we call the catch all weekend, basically that, uh, you know, we'll figure out where we are with our top guys. And then we'll sort of uh, use that weekend um, to backfill, you know, any positions that we've missed out on. So that uh, played out uh, accordingly. And, you know, USC now, again, are they at the point where it's, we're not going to take another running back. We missed on our top guy. That was the guy that we liked the most. And these other running backs that we did offer and we did like enough to give scholarship offers, we don't feel like we're going to get enough traction in those recruitments to really warrant, you know, any sort of effort there. We're going to just wait for the transfer portal. Uh, we'll lose Austin Jones. We may lose Mar we may, may lose Marshawn Lloyd as well. We'll have two positions there. We got two freshmen, so we can bring in another guy through the transfer portal and we feel like just looking at the last two cycles uh, with those windows that there are going to be quality players there that can come in and it can play for us right away. And again, you know, it's that sort of negotiating what you do on the recruiting trail with what you do with the transfers. And it's very tempting to just say, we're going to go after transfers because it's just a lot easier to recruit those guys. As long as you're in early and you've got that contact and you get that scholarship in there, if you can secure an official visit, USC, I mean, they're, they're sort of a ratio of commitment to visits for the transfers is ridiculous. Like it's got to be up there around like 85, 90%. I mean, they usually close on those players. So it's just a matter of making sure that you position yourself where you can get that official visit from a transfer. Then it seems like it's boom. It all happens within, you know, a week to two weeks. Whereas these recruitments out of high school are like a three-year thing. And, um, you know, there's a lot more effort that has to go into it. And with NIL, you know, not to beat that horse again, USC is clearly not going to be super aggressive. They're not going to pay kids up front a bunch of money to commit. Uh, it's going to be one of these things that, listen, these are the opportunities you're going to have when you enroll, but you're not getting anything until you signed on the line, which is dotted. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line, which is dotted. You make a really interesting point about how it's just really tempting to just go after the transfer portal or just kind of like wait to see what's going on in the transfer portal. Cause it does feel like USC is kind of like checking the temperature of the high school recruiting cycle. Like, Hey, maybe we'll pull off these flips. Maybe we won't, you know, it's obviously easier to do for the offensive side of the ball, the way they're playing right now. We can just wait a couple weeks. We don't really need to offer anybody new, see what, see what the, the landscape looks like. After, you know, we play some big games, you know, we go to Notre Dame, play Utah, see what the temperature's like, 
what the buzz is like with us. And if all else goes to feel, fail, we have the transfer portal right there, and we're very confident, at least for offensive linemen and skill players, that we're going to be okay when it comes to recruiting out of the portal. So it does feel like they're kind of half and half kind of waiting to see what happens, but also know they have a decent backup plan right there to fall back on because you're right. They are hitting an incredible rate when it comes to transfer recruiting and especially with offensive skill player transfer recruiting. Gerard, yeah, difference oh. makers on the oh. offensive side of the ball. And you've gotten some difference makers on the defensive side of the ball. Certainly Barrett Alexander to this point in the season has been the difference maker. Uh, you would hope that maybe you have a couple other guys that sort of jump out at you that become difference makers. Um, the last cycle before you know getting Barrett Alexander, you had Eric Gentry. Again, a difference maker. So it's not like they haven't been able to actually do uh, very well with guys that have been productive on both sides of the ball that are transfers. I do think that over time, you're going to sort of see a bit more of a pattern in terms of the amount of talent that is available in the transfer portal per position. I think there's some positions which are going to lend itself a little more than others, and that may continue to shape how you recruit out of the high school ranks. You want to have the best of both worlds. USC is not quite there at this point. They're not getting the best looks from all of the top four-star, five-star guys at the high school level. Maybe that changes here in the next year or so. I mean, we can keep saying that until they win a national champion and say, hey, you know, I mean, they're going to get a little better this year and maybe they're a little better next year. And it's like not until they actually start winning national championships. That shouldn't be the bar, though. I mean, you would think that you could still be a winning program that if you consistently win at least conference championships, and that's obviously going to change here in the near future where you're talking about Pac-12 conference versus the Big Ten conference, and that's a different animal over in the Big Ten because it means you're going to be beating Michigan, you're going to be beating Penn State, you're going to be beating Ohio State, which as a whole, that conference has been more competitive on the national scene than the Pac-12 conference. But nevertheless, that's kind of sort of where you would see or expect at least if you're winning at that standard consistently and Lincoln Riley's there and you've got more stability with the coaching staff at that point in 2025, uh, you know, 2024, you would expect to see it reflected more on the high school trail. You know, the 2023 class was good. It wasn't amazing. It wasn't, you know, quite as good, I think, as some expected it to be uh, when Lincoln Riley was hired. I would say even myself, in terms of expectations, I thought the turnaround might be a little quicker because you've seen it. Some schools, you just get a new coaching staff and the whole newness is like, wow, you know, it's amazing. Recruits, you know, they're going to be, uh, those coaches, guys, as opposed to, you know, some of the previous players that have been recruited, you know, everybody else like that, you know, oh, I'm going to be this guy's first running back recruit. I'm going to be this coaching staff's first linebacker recruit. So you do have some of that. You can make moves on the recruiting trail with hires as well in your support staff and bring in guys that maybe have some connections, some places. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on when you get that turnover, which some schools all of a sudden start recruiting really well. You know, they can make all kinds of promises about, you know, what's going to happen and, and and basically throw the past staff under the bus and say, oh, you know, I don't know what they're doing, but, you know, we're going to be great. So I did expect it to be a little better than it was in 2023. Not not a lot better, but I thought that, that there were some guys that they would get that they didn't get. And then thus far, 
I think with the 2024 class, I thought over the spring they would have more success and they would get, you know, a few more uh, commitments uh, from some top players and, and maybe more so on the offensive side of the ball because the defensive side of the ball didn't play great the previous year. And I think there was still some proving that has to go on. There's still to some extent, you know, they have to definitely prove that they can develop those guys on the defensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball can be successful. It can be at least, you know, somewhat competitive instead of being sort of an Achilles heel to the team's uh, national championship hopes. But, you know, on the offensive side of the ball, yeah, there's been some guys that they've missed out on. It's kind of surprising and um, some moves that they've made that you go, okay, well, that's, I didn't see that coming. Um, you know, really pushing for commitments over the summer and losing some guys, I think because of that. And now we transition into the season and where they can actually kind of, again, reestablish what they're doing from a player development standpoint on the field with wins and with yardage and with touchdowns, et cetera. But then looking at the board, who's left to impress and how much do you have to impress them to get them back on campus to get some more traction there? And, you know, they would need a, a few guys here, you know, to flip, I think, to, like I said, move the needle, get yourself into that sort of top 10 to where you can say, okay, you're seven or eight nationally in rankings uh, on recruiting with high school guys, not just overall, but with high school guys, you feel like you're getting a little bit better of both worlds. You know, you're getting some of those guys from the high school ranks, which again, looking at the schools uh, that are the schools that are constantly up there in the college football playoff, those schools are looking at the high school guys first. I mean, we've seen over the past two cycles, which is really sort of where we've, we've seen this influx of transfers it's been high school guys first, you know, Alabama, Ohio State, et cetera. They've definitely given their all into trying to land as many top high school guys as possible. And then as a supplement to maybe a position which they don't feel like they have somebody who can step in right away, they can kind of over recruit those positions with transfer guys. If they feel like hey, this is a guy that's going to compete for a starting job, that's basically sort of the standard in which, you know, Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, etc. are looking at transfers. Whereas USC the past two cycles, certainly the first cycle was, hey, we just need to kind of completely revamp this team from a point that there's going to be a lot of turnover. And it's that is not going to be the standard. The standard is going to be who can actually contribute for us, who's actually competitive in us to be in the two deep. Okay, now we've transitioned to where I think USC's a little more on that picky selective level of, okay, is this a guy that's actually going to start for us? And then it probably goes up even higher to where, you know, we want to get guys that are, you know, old conference level players, but you do have to have a certain amount of success out of the high school ranks to do that. <laughs> you, cause, cause I mean, it's just used from a number standpoint, you know, you can't just have a bunch of, uh, you know, like uh, kind of a, a half of a recruiting class uh, out of the high school ranks and then, you know, have a lower or have that really high standard with transfers, because, again, there's only going to be so many transfers that are going to be that level of a player uh, per position. So, you're you know, some some years you may have a position is absolutely stacked. Other years you may have a position of need and there's just not a lot of guys there. You don't know. You really don't know unless, you know, uh, Lincoln Riley has a crystal ball, a real crystal ball, which he can look and see the future. You really don't know what position is going to be 
Um, you know, there's going to be enough guys there where you feel comfortable, like, hey, man, we could even miss on a guy or two, and there's still going to be a guy there that's going to come in, kind of going to be able to probably start for us right away and be a really good player. Gerard, D's second question deals with your 2025 target list. Do you want to go into the 2025 list on your own, or do you want this question to no, let's send get the us question because the, the question will send us into something specific, and then we can expand on that. Okay. The second question from D. Gerard, on your 2025 target list, you have an arrow up for Chuck McDonald. Is USC in a good position for McDonald and LaRue Zambrano? The reason I bring up Zambrano is because you gave a good review of him when you saw him in action. Thanks to both of you for your great work. Thank you, D. Yeah, LaRue Zambrano out of Centennial High School. uh, A big, long cornerback who we didn't see much over the offseason for whatever reason. I mean, we didn't see a whole lot of Centennial, but he was supposed to be at a few different events. He actually told the JP five stars that he was going to be at uh, one of the USC camps, but he never made it. Um, so we didn't really get to see a whole lot of him during the off season. And I got to see him play against modern day. And I really liked him. I, I, he's got great length. He's far more physical than I thought. I think that was really the big thing. We've seen some guys, that have had length at cornerback. That's a real trend now in high school football, even seeing it coming out of like the junior All-American ranks where you've got all these guys that are 6'2", 6'3", who normally in the past, you know, five, six years ago, as recently as that, would have been receivers. But they know now that, hey, height is a sort of a special, unique attribute at defensive back. And if you can play corner and be that tall, there's a place for you because there's always going to be tall receivers. There's going to be more tall receivers out there than there are going to be defensive backs. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of guys that are taller, but they're not always physical, you know, just because they're taller and they're lanky. Well, you've got to be able to break down. You got to drop your butt. You got to make tackles in space. And if you're six, two, six, three, that sometimes is a little harder when you've got some smallish sort of Zach branch type guy in front of you. So there are only so many guys who can do it. And there are only so many guys who can really play near the line of scrimmage. And because there's so much RPO, there's a lot going on at the line of scrimmage nowadays with quarterbacks. Cornerbacks have become a bigger part of containment uh, against the offense than they ever have been. And and even in the passing game, you know, you don't think about that. You think containment, you immediately think run. But nowadays, because there's so many bubble screens, uh, you know, tunnel screens and things happening there outside the hash marks uh, behind the line of scrimmage with the receivers, you have to have a guy who can get off blocks. And if you've got a big receiver out there or you put a tight end out there, that's even worse for the defensive back, specifically the cornerback. So you do need a little more length. You do need a little more size. But at the same time, you're still in space and you got to break down and make those plays. So what I liked about uh, Zamorano was that he was at the line of scrimmage. He ran up. He made tackles in the open space. He had a really good form tackle on Marcus Harris. That was just brilliant. Like it was straight up. Hey, this is how you do it. Like we need to put this on PowerPoint for some of these guys to know this is exactly how you square up and make a good form tackle. And so I really liked him from that standpoint. And he really likes USC. Big fan. Um, I don't know if he's been up for any games. I can't remember off the top of my head if uh, he made any of our lists that uh, uh, that we put up. He he has not. At least I haven't. I mean, there are some guys I miss, but for the most part, that is not a name that I've written down for any of the games this season. Yeah. He said he was going up for one of the games and was excited about it. And I don't think he made it. And that's just, like I said, not a surprise because 
he said he was going to be at some events during the summer he never made. So, um, but he is definitely, uh, I think he's ranked number 39 nationally at cornerback. He's better than that. Like he, he might be even just a three-star right now. He is definitely a better player than that. Uh, having seen him up close and seen him against those modern day receivers, which are good receivers. And, uh, he definitely held his own. So, um, good player there. And a guy that, yeah, definitely says good things about USC was very high on USC. Chuck McDonald as well. Very high on USC has been to USC, got his scholarship offer actually, uh, as a sophomore going into his junior year. Um, at one of the first elite camps that uh, he got invited to. So USC is doing well with him right now. I know people are kind of rolling their eyes because he's a modern day kid and USC has been shut out at modern day for the most part, but they're in a good position for him right now. You know, will that be the case a year from now? I can't say, you know, USC was in a good position for several of those modern day players up until let's say March, April of last year. And again, some of that is NIL. Some of that is just, the process and just what's happening right now on the recruiting trail. Um, Dejon Lee is another guy that gets high interest that really likes USC that at this point in time is a regional recruit, even though he's, I think a five-star composite wise, which is a little high for him. I, I think we've seen him play several times this season already. Hasn't made a huge impact for mission Viejo. Um, now, you know, he's a big corner and a lot of teams just won't throw that way if they know that you're you know a guy with a name and they can kind of take you out of the game by just not throwing to that side of the field that's going to happen um he has tried to get involved more on the offensive side of the ball uh, but really hasn't made a huge impact thus far so we're kind of waiting to see you know if he can kind of grow, grow i want to say grow into he's already 6 485 pounds but sort of uh, become the guy that on paper you know, a lot of people feel like he could be, you know, there's a lot of potential there because of the the frame, um, the, the speed, you know, he has a lot of the things that you want from a profile standpoint. It's just a matter of, you know, again, can he be physical? Can, can he use that body near the line of scrimmage to actually make plays? Um, can he be a guy that with the ball in the air can make plays? You know, what are his ball skills really like? He has not played a lot for Mission Viejo as a starter. So this is really his first year getting that full run. And it's been a little bit of a mixed bag, you know, going from the offseason, watching him, you know, he's had some plays where he's just kind of, I don't know if it's just kind of a, a mental brain fart, but some guys have beat him. Um, and then some other instances where it's just like, he's kind of like a little lost out there. Saw him go head to head with Jeremiah Smith and Jeremiah Smith, uh, the top wide receiver in the 2024 class got the best of those exchanges. Uh, whereas we saw Devin Sanchez, who's a five-star cornerback, out of Houston, goes to North Shore High School, uh, go head-to-head with uh, Jeremiah Smith, and he held his own better. So, again, I think, you know, looking at that specific tournament, the OT7 tournament, where I don't think Dijon Lee's really seen a whole lot of guys like Jeremiah Smith, you know, whereas Devin Sanchez has been starting longer, good team down there in South Texas at at North Shore, and I think just he was not – he was more composed. It really was one of the main things is I think, you know, he didn't get lost out there. He kind of knew what he had to do, read the situation well. And Devin Sanchez is a hell of a player. USC's after Devin Sanchez. They've offered Devin Sanchez. Uh, when I talked to Devin Sanchez after that game specifically, he said, man, you know, you got to pick to win the game for Trillion Boys over uh, the, uh, I think it was South Florida Express, actually, that uh, Jeremiah Smith was playing for. And, you know, came down to the last play. And it was one-on-one, you and Jeremiah Smith. And, 
you know, Devin Sanchez, he read the play really well. He got on his back pedal. He knew that ball had to go in the end zone. And basically he just looked at that angle and figured, okay, this is going to be a jump ball. I better get to the right place where I can extend and I can get up in the air against this dude. And he did, and he knocked the ball away, and Trillian Boys ends up winning. And so I talked to him right after that. I said, hey, man, you just want to get number one wide receiver in the 2024 class. Uh, that was a great battle, man. Like what was going through your head, that last play, what you had to do. First thing out of his mouth was Jeremiah Smith's a great player. I hope that maybe we can play on the same team. <laughs> which is not good news for USC considering that Jeremiah Smith is already committed to Ohio state. So yeah. Um, you know, USC's uh, they're trying to make some moves there, but I, I wouldn't necessarily hold your breath for Devin Sanchez. They, there definitely has to have been more uh, of a relationship built there. He doesn't have much of a relationship with the coaching staff. Um, I think his first unofficial visit was that week or, or, or around that time he, he did go to USC, but he was also going back for a camp at Ohio State and, um, again, talked about Ohio State a lot. So uh, one of those things why, you know, Devin Sanchez, he's got medium interest in USC, and uh, the arrow is down on that because I think while potentially USC could get an official visit down the line, I wouldn't necessarily uh, eliminate that. I think they are definitely squarely behind um, schools like Ohio State, Alabama, et cetera, uh, for Devin Sanchez and, and quite a few players. And, you know, that's why you see a lot of mediums there where USC still has some potential to be able to get some guys on campus, uh, whether officially or unofficially. But are they really leading for any of those players? You know, are they really in the top two or three for any of those players? And in some instances, they may be uh, in a top two or three, but that's just because that particular player hasn't been to a lot of schools. And again, going back to modern day, they were – you know, in, in, in probably borderline high interest with a lot of guys like Xavier Brown, et cetera. But those kids just didn't visit USC many times during the spring. And they went and they made their little national tours and did their little NIL presentations. And it was like USC out of sight, out of mind. And that's got to change because they kind of forget about USC and USC being um, an option. And, and, you know, when they're on campus, they definitely have a good time. They always rave about it. But you know, if you two or three months go by and you haven't been back on campus and you've been listening to, oh, the SEC, SEC, you you know, you want to play in the NFL, you got to go to the SEC, then, you know, that kind of brainwashes you to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, there's other positions in 2025 that USC's doing very well. They're doing very well with uh, Noah McHale, uh, the uh, four-star uh, inside linebacker, 6'3", 210, uh, out of uh, Bonita High School in uh, Laverne. And uh, Madden Ferriamo is another guy that you know really likes USC. It's interesting because I do get the vibe that USC is not recruiting him quite as hard as may, maybe Noah. And I hope that it's not one of those, hey, we're going to recruit one guy and you're going to be our guy. I mean, it's linebacker, man. you got to recruit a bunch of players. But mm-hmm. you get the you get the feeling that, you know, Ferriamo doesn't quite have the same relationship. And, you know, partly maybe that's on him because he hasn't been up there uh, quite as much. But, you know, he's got some family. Uh, that have gone through USC and a uh, big USC fan, but also a guy that's regional at this point. He's potentially a national, I mean, he is a national recruit. He's definitely good enough to be a national recruit, um, but he's just not one of those guys that has gone on that national tour and gotten all the NIL offerings and, and gone through that whole process yet. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just not one of those dudes that's into that. He wants to stay closer to home. I get that vibe that he would rather stay closer to home. So it's kind of like UCLA, USC is really the schools that he knows the most about. 
Um, and USC kind of has to take advantage. But, I mean, I think he's a little more of an outside linebacker, a kid that played safety for the longest time, uh, very athletic, uh, just, you know, just a good-looking football player from an athletic standpoint, got a good frame to him, and certainly that would be a great duo, Noah McHale and Madden Ferriamo. And, you know, we talked about the 2024 class, and there's certain positions where there's just been no movement in terms of additional scholarship offers, new scholarship offers. The one position where you have seen that is linebacker, interestingly. And USC's done well recruiting linebackers out of the transfer portal. So that's an irregular – oh, man, I would pick a word that I can't pronounce, huh? That's an irregularity. Sound like me. Sound like me, man. That's an irregularity in that, you know, they've done well in the portal, but for whatever reason – you know, when they lost out on Kingston, Valle Muasa, and they lost out really even before Chris Cole uh, visited, they already put out a bunch of scholarship offers. I guess Ty Anthony Smith would be the other player there where it kind of looked like their plan A was Kingston, Valle Muasa at Mike Linebacker, and then Will Linebacker would have been Ty Anthony Smith. Obviously, they they lose out on both of those players over the summer. Uh, Kingston, Valle Muasa commits to Notre Dame. And then Ty Anthony Smith commits to Texas A&M. Uh, different players, just in terms of their builds. I mean, you know, Avalia Muasa is like 225, 230. And Ty Anthony Smith is, is much smaller, about like 205. So you see the different body types and you see where they would want them at different linebacker positions. Uh, but that's where USC, I mean, they just shot out a bunch of scholarship offers. And at this point, really, it's only Asiata and Boganowski. Michael Boganowski is the other player here. Um, and we're just saying, you know, he's got medium interest in USC. Might officially visit USC. He's kind of talked a little bit about, yeah, USC is a school that I'm interested in seeing. Whether it really happens or not remains to be seen. He's a three-star, 6'2", 210, plays quarterback as well as linebacker, uh, which is intriguing. You know, all those, always those guys that play on both sides of the ball, and particularly quarterback. You know that he's smart, he's cerebral. He's seen, um, you know, defenses and had to diagnose defenses at the line of scrimmage, which helps you as a defensive player. But Junction City, Kansas, this is like a K-State type of guy. You know, this is not like the normal place that you go to try to recruit a USC linebacker. This is sort of old, uh, you know, forgot we're not at Oklahoma, maybe a little bit type of uh, <laughs> linebacker there. Uh, where Ephraim Asiata is a little more of the West Coast guy where you go, OK, you know, that's Utah. You should be able to go in there and uh, battle, you know, Utah head to head and try to get a guy. So interesting, you know, Devin Smith, another guy that if I'm looking for like replacement players, prospects that you lost out over the summer on. Uh, you're looking at Ty Anthony Smith. You know, De- Devin Smith is six foot two ten uh, on the shorter side. That's kind of why he doesn't have a bunch of scholarship offers. Well, he has a few scholarship offers. I think he even has an Alabama scholarship offer. Means nothing. Alabama is probably not in contact with him anymore. Um, but you know, from a body standpoint, a little shorter. Uh, and, and that's, you know, with a lot of defenses, you know, the schools that, you know, their plan A's are all in the guys that have the long arms that are tall for the most part. Um, so this is like, you know, USC going, all right, who can we find on film that might do some of the things that Ty Anthony Smith did? And it's just interesting that there is an immediate pivot here and there is immediate, okay, we need to go offer more scholarships to linebackers, but not at other positions. So that's just a little bit of a, you know, trying to figure it out. I'm not 100% sure why that is. If it's like, I mean, 
there's some type of, you know, you're looking at the roster and who you have now and who might be coming back, who you're losing, you know, from a need standpoint, number standpoint, as opposed to um, some of these other positions. I mean, again, linebacker, you know, you've got two, maybe three guys there, the, you know, positions that you're recruiting for, I guess, to, depending on the base personnel that you're using. Um, so you can't just say, hey, Chris Cole's our, our guy and we're just going to recruit Chris Cole. That doesn't make sense. You know, you need more numbers than that. And But you could say that with, you know, offensive line. You could say that, quite frankly, with any position because the trouble with the transfer portal, there is the outgoing and ingoing. And you don't know what guys on your, like, third team are going to just bolt and say, you know what, I'm third team and I'm not going to be moving up the depth chart. I can go somewhere else. I can go to Sac State. I can go to UNLV, wherever, and I can go try to be a starter. And so, you know, all of a sudden you lose depth, like, really quickly. And it's like, okay, well, we could have grabbed, you know, maybe a couple more high school guys um, and developed them, you know, because that's the other part of all of this is the player development. The guys that are three stars, like an Anani Noah, that have been able to show that, hey, stars don't matter. You know, we know they do, but at least in that particular situation, and I think this is true in the in both lines, you're going to have to find those guys and develop them and get them to a point where you can at least argue that some of those guys that you get, uh, you don't have to get a bunch of four stars and five stars on the line uh, to be able to have good offensive lines. You're going to be able to find some gems, uh, but you, A, got to find them from an evaluation standpoint, and B, you got to coach them up, which is, you know, as important, if not more important. And so USC has shown that they could do that on the offensive line. We haven't really seen that uh, at linebacker really at all. You know I mean? I think there's Garrett um, uh, Madden, who's who's there and, and a guy that was kind of a late ad uh, that uh, was a track guy and what have you, you know, some people are kind of interested to see if he's he a guy that can get developed, you know, over, over the years here and can actually make an impact at USC, or is he going to be one of these guys that, you know, he ends up in the transfer portal um, you know, in December or, or next year or what have you. That's the that's the thing that you always have to kind of keep in mind, which is why I say, you know, this whole thing about let's let's get our class done during the summer. I, I just get get the guys you can get. And if it's a, during the summer, cool. If they want to wait, cool. Uh, don't eliminate yourself from a recruitment. I, I think that's a rule that over 20 years of doing this, I kind of think is kind of a hard and fast one. You know, you're, you're going to have a lot of obstacles in recruiting. Don't do anything to eliminate yourself. You know, don't give ultimatums with good players and you could take either of those guys like that. You'll sort that out. You know, that'll, that'll sort out in November and you don't got enough room. Then you figure it out then, but uh, you kind of have to um, make sure that you have uh, the ability to, to, to stack as many good recruits in the recruiting class up until the last minute, and then you be the one to determine, you know, who, uh, who, who stays and who doesn't. I really don't know how you nearly took us to an hour just on the cold open alone. And there wasn't a lot to talk about for this show, but we've already almost burned an hour off the target list, which is to say Gerard offered a lot of good information there. So I hope you were really listening because you just, Yeah, that that happened. That happened. So, Gerard, thank you for that extensive breakdown of your updates for the 2024 and 2025 offer list. And thank you to D for the assist to give us some specifics to talk about 
with those target lists. But yeah, I didn't now, even get into the offensive side of the ball for 2025. Holy cow. Yeah, you <laughs> you almost just went you just went in. You just went in. But yeah. well, there, you, well, you know what? We'll we'll leave that. It is a premium feature, so we'll leave that for now, and we'll move on to another another topic. Yes, let's let's move on to a late addition to this docket of things to talk about, and a notable one. You know, maybe could have been our cold open, but USC did make a new offer in the 2024 class, and you know we typically don't talk about new offers anymore but when they're significant and especially in the fall season and it's a offer to a current cycle 2024 that is always noteworthy and newsworthy and interesting to look at but usc offered three-star 2024 louisiana edge prospect gabriel relaford six foot two 255 pounds from shreveport louisiana Angval Christian Academy. He is a four-star prospect in the composite rankings at number 316 overall. And the 23 edge prospect, a three-star on the 24-7 sports ranking as the number 50 prospect. He is a Texas A&M commit, committed to the Aggies back in June. Holds some power five offers from the likes of Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, Arizona State, Baylor, Texas, excuse me, Tennessee, a different color orange and a different letter T offered him in September as well. In addition to USC pulling the trigger on an offer for him, has some track times, very productive in his junior and sophomore seasons, a hundred tackles as a sophomore, 129 tackles as a junior, 27 tackles for a loss as a junior with six sacks, 28 tackles for a loss as a sophomore and 15 sacks. So super productive out there in Louisiana now, as I said, a Texas A&M commit. This is a very interesting offer because Gerard, looking at the Texas A&M evaluations when he did commit, you know, there was talk on, you see on his film that he can play inside linebacker or does play inside linebacker, but mainly what we saw is an edge guy on film. So this begs the question, is this sort of another middle linebacker or a guy they want to turn to a middle linebacker? Or is this a, Let's call it what it is, a Jalen Harvey pivot. If you don't know who Jalen Harvey is, well, you haven't been listening to the show for the last several weeks. The the Maryland prospect, the edge rusher who USC is a finalist for with Maryland, Penn State, and then, of course, the Trojans. But is this sort of a, a white flag, if you will, going in another direction with this new offer? That's a good read. I think that's a very interesting talking point. And yes, watching film on Relaford, and you know, we kind of just were scrambling and pulling up his name and uh, the profile to kind of uh, see what type of player he was and see where he's been the most productive and 100% been most productive as a rush end. You know, a little bigger body. Uh, I think then uh, Jalen Harvey, Jalen, Jalen's a good looking athlete, you know, not a lot of bad body weight. He's, he's, he doesn't look like he's going to put on a lot of weight. I think his updated uh, roster weight is actually 250, which is, is surprising. I mean, he's about 235, 240. And when I saw him during the off season, he struck me more of a, a linebacker build, but a guy that was, kind of borderline big enough that he could be a rush in you know you're you're kind of looking at the frame 
Again, length is such a big deal to be able to play at the line of scrimmage. And I felt like Harvey was right at that line as a guy that, um, you know, kind of uh, Jamil Mohammed. Uh, sort of kind of border of like, okay, you know, does he have that athleticism to where there are aspects of his physicality, which, you know, he could uh, have a trouble being able to play at the line of scrimmage. And I think, you know, with USC, when they got uh, Muhammad earlier in the first game during the season, and really in the first couple games, I think they wanted to use him a little more as a pass down specialist. And I can see that because, I mean, he's quick, he's agile, and he has natural pass rush skills. He's not a huge guy, though. Even though he's, mm-hmm. he's probably a good 240 and he's, he's got good lower body strength and what have you, the length is not really there. It's not Anthony Lucas length. Anthony Lucas is like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. And regardless of whether he's 250 or 270, he's long and he can disengage blocks and he can get his hands up. And he, you could do certain things as, as an end. And I think just with these hybrid defenses, when you're at the line of scrimmage, those are the kind of guys that you really want. So with Harvey, sort of borderline that way. And, he, and he's and he got just enough athleticism. You say, you know, he's going to be a good player. I think he's going to be okay. But then he's not quite the 6'4", you know, kind of long arms that you'd really, really want at the line of scrimmage. And so, you know, from a uh, physicality standpoint, um, you see some similarities between the two players. You know, they're they're both around the same size, um, and they both, again, are sort of like rush ends at the high school level. Um, you know, production-wise, it seems like Relford, you know, there's a little more there. Um, but, you know, I know what people are thinking right now, and particularly Trojan fans, which are probably the only people actually listen to this podcast is why another three-star like what if you're going to go after somebody committed to texas a&m go after the guy that's anthony lucas go after the guy that's like the five-star guy that's committed to texas a&m and i mean i don't know the reasoning behind it i don't know that you look at texas a&m's committed roster and uh say okay this is the guy we want out of all of them you know that's the first um you know, guy off the bus evaluation wise that you want to go after. And I, and I don't have Texas A&M's committed class just right here in front of me to know like who else they have, but you, you know, I can see the argument for that. Now, now why are these schools going after him now? I mean, I think he's probably put some good film on um, the, the, maybe the first, first, you know, like four games of the senior season, which we haven't seen, or I, I haven't seen, I was looking at his junior highlights. So maybe there's more there, which, you know, you could argue, say, yeah, he's a three-star now, but he's a guy that if you update the rankings by what he's done as a senior, then maybe he'd be ranked a little higher. You know, he's gotten some scholarship offers, so that says something. I think the scholarship offers also say that Texas A&M had a really bad game against uh, Miami. <laughs> and a lot of people see that there's going to be some issues there for them during the season. They're maybe going to look bad in some games and that uh, they may suffer from that with some decommitment. So, you know, you've got schools that are that are that are circling a little bit. You know, they smell blood in the water. And we've seen this from the other side of the two-way mirror. <laughs> we've seen this with USC, where USC, you know, where they had struggles in the Clay Helton era, and you could just see scholarship offers starting to go after some of the top guys in their class, and they start to get poached, uh, particularly anybody that was committed out of state during the summer, you know, guys like Mikai Williams. So, yeah, with, uh, you know, Gabriel Redford, Relford, we'll see um, – 
you know, if we can get a little more information from, you know, how he's played at ECA uh, senior year, is he a guy that might potentially get a bump or is this just, you know, a little bit of low hanging fruit. And like you said, uh, feeling like uh, they're on maybe uh, the outside in now with Jalen Harvey and which I felt they were uh, at least, you know, the, the few days after the official visit, the fact that, you know, they, they, they didn't take a lead for Harvey at that point. I was hearing from sources that, yeah, you know, uh, Penn State's kind of like they would be in the lead, except USC has the better NIL. And when I heard that, I went, uh, if NIL is the thing that's the main factor for him to like USC or to keep him from committing to Penn State, then that's probably not going to play itself out real well for USC. I mean, I think that, you know, you'd want other things to be top factors for USC, not NIL. And it brings up the, the conversation of the leveraging that goes on behind the scenes with the talk of NIL. You know, is it is there really NIL there from USC side at all? Um, you know, from from a side of, you know, right here, right now. I mean, we know like enrollment and, and um, you know, opportunities when you're on the roster at USC, but we've seen them lose too many guys where NIL was a factor right here, right now, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about this because there's some congressional hearings about NIL and some hopes to uh, regulate it from a federal side, which, you know, who knows? But the, the, when we're talking NIL and lack thereof for USC, it's not opportunities, it's not deals when you're in a Trojan uniform. Because Caleb Williams is clearly killing it in NIL. And there's a bunch of players on the team. They're doing very well. And I think when you're at USC and you're playing at USC, NIL is a factor that works in USC's favor. It's what schools are actually paying, you know, and it's it's not, you know, hey, you show up on campus and here's a check, kid. No, that's not how it's working. It's basically going through multiple hands and, you know, sort of NIL laundering that's going on. But it's the, you know, how much am I going to get paid to commit? That's the question. And then that's USC's not in that game right now. And that's why I think for some guys, they've lost out on some of those players. And we've talked about that. So I'm not going to rehash those players and those recruitments. But when it gets implied, that's what's keeping USC in a recruitment. I'm like, no, that that might be something that's being said behind the scenes. Because again, I think there's leveraging that goes on. And there's, well, this school is offering this. And oh, well, this school is offering that. I mean, these schools can't come out publicly and talk about that. And really, even privately, who's going to talk about that? You know, what, what, are, are schools actually like calling each other? Are the collectives, more importantly, calling each other and have some type of gentleman agreement to say, yeah, we didn't offer this kid that much money. He told you that we offered him that much. We didn't offer him that much money. And then the other school has to believe that you're telling the truth because you, you're bidding at this point if you're paying kids right then and right there to commit to you. So this is all, it's completely a mess. You know, I, 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 it's not just like from a federal regulation standpoint, it's just from the standpoint of, you know, not getting played and getting used um, for, you know, a, a couple $10,000 here, you know, like, you know, maybe, you know, a $50,000 thing here and, you know, you can get a little more right now. Um, and, and it's, it's not even the kids that are really negotiating any of this. It's always sort of the handlers and it's the trainers and there's other people that are involved within that circle. And, you know, everybody wants a piece of the pie and in the, the smaller, the pie, the less there is to go around. 
And so you want to make that pie as big as possible so everybody gets a little taste and they can say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm making some money off of this. You know, I'm, I'm actually doing something from this. And then there's deals that are more set up for, well, if you get to the NFL, then, you know, second contract, you know, we're going to take this percentage. We talked about that last week with uh, one of the players uh, that was uh, at Florida that's suing um, you know, uh, I, I think it was, it was it Florida. Well, who was, who is he suing? No, he was suing one of the NIL sort of, um, groups. Yeah. Groups. I don't even know how to describe them. They're kind of like a group that kind of negotiates NIL and gives kids money up front for visits and this, that, and the other, but then they take a piece of that player's NFL contract. <laughs> Excuse bless me. you. If, Excuse if they make that contract, right. And so he felt like there was some predatory uh, dealings there and, and it was against uh, Florida state law, so on and so forth. And so, you know, that's one of probably many situations that are going to arise here in the, in the future where you've got people that are representing themselves as, um, you know, experts in the NIL field. And, you know, they're going to try to, again, lobby and try to negotiate and leverage, get as much money out of the situation as possible. It's just, there's no system there for the collectives or the universities to really know, you know, what's going on. That's, that's why I always roll my eyes at these, oh yeah, this quarterback's getting $11 million to go to such and such school. That is complete BS, man. There's nobody playing $11 million for any quarterback. I don't care if he's the number one quarterback in the nation. That is not happening that way. But those numbers get, uh, they get um, blown up. Uh, yeah, that, that's not the word I was looking for anyways, but that, but they're, they're trying to, 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 you know, get these numbers up as high as possible to sort of normalize like, oh, well, I mean, that's just what it takes to get a five-star running back. That's just what it, you know, so, so they're thinking these boosters are just so passionate and slightly dumb enough that they can just, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll just pay whatever because we want to win uh, championships, which isn't really true either because, I mean, a lot of these collectives are being run by very successful businessmen. I just don't know how they figure out, you know, what's what because, again, um, you have to have some type of gentleman's agreement. Like, listen, you know, this kid wants this, and uh, he's his, his representatives are saying that you're going to give him this, and them to say, no way, not even close. Like it's not happening. So where are we then? So what are you? What are you? What are you offering them? Well, we don't want to tell you exactly what we're going to offer. I mean, I just it's 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 sticky. But you know what? I'm not a business school graduate. Um, you know, I don't I don't know how these things and negotiations are figured out in the private sector. Normally, obviously, this is different because it's private sector then bleeding into this NCAA sort of uh, networking bylaws and. It's, I mean, it's complicated and it's uh, right now a complete mess of a system. It's, it's, there's no system that really exists is really (laughs) the the, the first problem. Before we jump into the, uh, the next topic, which is the uh, Congress and NIL to make things even more messier. I did want to point out because you mentioned where Relaford kind of falls in the class. He is the lowest ranked commit in Texas A&M's class at the moment. And he is the only, uh, well, he's listed as a defensive lineman here in this class, but he's an edge prospect. And he's just one of three, if we're going to round him up to a defensive lineman, he's one of three defensive line commitments in that class. And then, Gerard, you can confirm 
that he goes to the same high school John Booty went to? Uh, ECA, Evangel Christian High School. Yeah, John David Booty went to Evangel Christian High School. His dad pretty much ran that high school. And um, i trying to remember if USC had signed anybody else from the school. There was a couple other recruits that came through uh, subsequent years after John David Booty came to USC. Um, but not a lot of success there. In Louisiana, obviously, you know, the biggest player that USC was ever able to get out of Louisiana was John, uh, Joe McKnight uh, out of John Curtis. And then, um, you know, they get Tackett Curtis um, out of uh, out of out of Louisiana as well. And oddly, Tackett Curtis's uncle, I think, is John Curtis, correct? Uh, I don't know if it well, Jesse Curtis is his uncle. I don't know if there's I actually don't know if they're related. I This is the first time I've ever like thought of that. I thought I read that somewhere where he had some relation to John Curtis, who Look, was, I wouldn't the be high, surprised. was the head coach at John Curtis High School. It, 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 I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a whole thing. But, um, I mean, they've, they've had some, some, some success here and there with uh, Louisiana, more so than, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi. There's some states that USC offers scholarships to, and you just go, dude. <laughs> When's the last time you had a guy on campus officially from the state of Mississippi? I mean, it, I I can't even remember off the top of my head that ever happening. I think there was a center prospect way, way back in the day when the Pete Carroll era that visited USC. And, I mean, the read after his official visit was this guy was looking for, like, where he would go bass fishing if he went to USC. And that was, like, <laughs> not happening. So it was one of those things, like, yeah, that's why you don't recruit kids out of Mississippi uh, or South Carolina or some of these other states. But nevertheless um, – yeah, that's interesting. With, on this topic, with Texas A&M's class, who are the other defensive linemen uh, that they have uh, committed in that class that are ranked higher than Relaford? They are actually the number two and three highest-rated prospects in that class. That would be Dylan Evans, a six-foot-four, two hundred sixty-pound defensive lineman out of Pine Tree, Longview, Texas. He is the number forty-one overall prospect, four-star. And then their second highest rated prospect is a five star. I believe this is off the composite rankings, but he is uh, Dominic McKinley out of uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, six foot six, 280 pounds, number 31 overall prospect. So Dominic McKinley and then Dalen Evans are their other two defensive line commits in addition to uh, Relaford. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Not familiar with either of those players, but I mean, Texas A&M has recruited really well up front, like really well. And that's one of those things. It's uh, if you could combine USC's recruiting offensively with Texas A&M's recruiting defensively, you would have a national championship team. You'd have a Georgia type roster. That's kind of sort of, you know, where <laughs> what USC needs to, to aim for uh, basically on the defensive side of the ball. All right, as I mentioned, we can use your uh, USC, NIL, NIN general talking point to go into the next topic, which is, you know, sometimes we do branch into the uh, the politics of NIL. We've mentioned a couple of times, you know, new bills that are coming up, lawsuits, state regulated NIL stuff. There's a whole bunch of messy things going on, but there. Uh, is a new article that came out that uh, Gerard linked to about Congress voting on an NIL bill for um, for college football 
And obviously, not saying this specifically what Lincoln Riley was talking about, but he has talked about the need for greater oversight and uh, regulation and conformity when it comes to regulating and uh, adhering to NIL rules. And obviously, we have mentioned it several times, multiple times in this progress podcast, excuse me, that it is the Wild West right now of NIL. So possibly these new bills that, you know, are coming forth to the Senate, they might help in uh, doing what Lincoln Riley has been asking for, you know, this this regulation and uh, more oversight for all of these things going on, because obviously there's a lot of uh, dark spaces and dark corners of the uh, NIL space when it comes to college football and college athletics in general that is not out there. But maybe when you have a government regulated bill that is widespread across the nation and not state legislators making their own rules for different parts of the country, you could have that uh, cohesion when it comes to uh, rules for how schools and colleges should be uh, regulating NIL with the collectives and all that. As Gerard just mentioned in that little spiel when he dove into Jalen Harvey, it's it's just all over the place. So, yeah, Gerard, Congress, what do you have to say about Congress, Senator Hurricane? Yeah, I don't foresee the federal government really getting into this right here and right now. I think Ted Cruz had said something to the effect, uh, at least was quoted by one article, and there's actually several articles about these hearings, that there was like a 60-40% chance that it would actually pass through, and then there were a few other uh, congressmen and women who had opined and basically said, yeah, we've got other priorities. So I don't get the sense that this is really something that's a priority for the federal government. And I've said before, it's just going to take scams. It's going to take people being defrauded and it hitting in the media. And then, you know, it's like, Oh my God, these college kids are getting taken advantage of. And that sort of is going to be the thing retroactively, which will get maybe federal government. Something, something big and horrific and tragic needs. Yeah. That's usually, you know, what moves the needle at Capitol Hill where they got to react to it and say, oh, my gosh, we have to do something now. Um, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Hopefully the NCAA can fix it themselves. And that's basically what the government is saying right now. The vibe that I'm getting is it's like, hey, listen, this is your issue. This is your problem. You allowed it to fester long enough with the system you had that was broken. You refused to reform it. You refused to adjust it. And now it is irreparable. And you're going to have to basically build a new system. And, of course, the NCAA is like, we don't know how to do that. We don't want to do that either. So that's where we are right now. So that that's why you you think, okay, you know, if, it, if they're just going to rely on the federal government to come in and fix it, then it's going to take something to really jar the general public in order to do so. Now, the big issue, though, and, and I don't like to ever uh, take the defense for the NCAA uh, in most issues, but in this particular issue, one problem that the NCAA is going to come into uh, is coming head on with trying to have some type of regulation with NIL is the fact that you cannot investigate and then enforce a whole lot because most of what NIL is 
is done in this in the private sector. It's an economic issue. And the NCAA does not have subpoena ability. The NCAA cannot get into people's bank accounts. Uh, the NCAA is really just it's it's all about sort of people that are involved um, are employees of universities, which fall directly under those bylaws. But kids that are recruits do not fall, fall under those bylaws. Uh, boosters do not fall under those bylaws, although they do to some extent when they're dealing directly with university issues. But collectives are not associated with the universities. Collectives are not associated in any way with any universities. Their boosters can be individually when they're dealing with uh, maybe facility, fundraisers, et cetera. But there's a big gap between that and what's going on with NIL and paying kids in the private sector. You know, there just is just there's not enough overlap there where the NCA would be able to say, well, we have some type of control over what this booster is doing or how they're doing things. There's compliance and there is all these things that are in place that are supposed to at face value uh, vet some of these deals that go on. And I've talked a little bit about this in the past where there have been companies and I've talked to some people that have done some NIL deals with college athletes and they've had to deal with USC compliance and going through USC compliance when it came to logos and, and patents and things of that nature, if they were wanting to use the school colors or the school logo and the branding, et cetera. Um, but in terms of like who's really being paid to do what from an NIL standpoint, hey, we're going to pay you $50,000. And this is just even with kids that are enrolled at the university, right? So there, there is some type of control that the NCAA can have through the university with that particular player. So if you want to do business with that particular player, well, that particular player is enrolled at this university and this university has to adhere to the guidelines and the bylaws of the NCAA. But when you go into the recruiting process, those kids aren't enrolled at these universities. And these boosters are doing business with some trainer, some guy that's, you know, removed from, uh, the kid specifically, you know, the prospect himself isn't necessarily going to have a bank account and you're just going to say, oh, here, we're going to give you $100,000 and you're going to do some charity work. You're going to show up here, you know, once a week to do this. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. They just got $100,000 to go to a school, right? Which is inducement, which is illegal. But nevertheless, how are you going to prove that if you're the NCAA? You can't. You, The only way you could actually enforce any rules that you have in place for for NIL is if somehow there was a whistleblower more than likely on the recruit side of things that says, Hey, I did this deal with this collective that for, you know, with a wink and a nod said, if you go to this school and obviously you don't want to have anything in writing because that ends up in court, then it gets back to, well, this school, which does have an association with this booster, even though it's not the collective at whole, you know, had talked to this kid and, and basically written this contract sort of, if you will, to, to go to a specific school to get that specific amount of money. But the but the issue is that the collectives themselves can work through companies that are shell companies where there's nobody's name there that, that they're doing business with. It's just a, a blank account for some LLC. Well, who's a part of that LLC? Who's who's to, to prove that the boosters are actually individually involved with that LLC? Could have been somebody else that's at the, at the, at the head um, name of the CEO of this LLC that has no, no association with the school. 
So how are you proving that it's actually the boosters that are putting money into this company to then, you know, give that money to that recruit or, or that recruits, um, you know, handler to get that kid to go to said school be, with these guidelines that, hey, you know, it has to be this school and maybe they're even performance type of, you know, things involved with it. I mean, we've seen some some contracts elite, whether you believe them or not, where there were specific performance sort of, hey, this is what you'll get each year if you go to this school, which again is inducement. You know, have, have we seen anybody, you know, getting any knocks at the door by the NCAA? We've heard a little bit about Miami being investigated and what have you, but nothing specific, nothing about, you know, any specific um, conduct that was done by any uh, specific uh, collectives that were uh, representing the interests of Miami. Again, not associated directly. So what we get out of these latest talks are A, I don't think the federal government really wants to get involved. And, and there are plenty of people who make good arguments to say they shouldn't be involved, but like keep them out. Like you do not want government regulation in all this. Um, two, there is talk that, hey, listen, even if the government isn't involved, there needs to be something done to get everybody on the same page. There needs to be some certain guidelines. Whether they're, you, you can really enforce them or not, though, to me, that keeps coming up as an issue. You could sit there and say, well, okay, there, there needs to be some salary cap or there needs to be some like, okay, well, kids need to go to, 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 to they need to graduate or they need to have a certain GPA in order to get NIL deals. And, and again, it's like, well, okay, cool. We're talking about the, the players that are in college right now. That's not, I don't think the biggest issue in the world. I think, you know, the issue is really kind of stemming into getting players to go to your school with NIL, dangling that NIL carrot out there with money to commit, money to take visits. One of the more interesting comments that was made is that Gene Smith, uh, the AD of Ohio State that everyone knows, former Heisman Trophy winner, he made the comment, it's not uncommon, quote unquote, for kids to get $5,000 just to take a visit to a school. I can confirm that. I can tell you, I've been, I've heard that several times. I was told that it was $75,000 to get a group of 17, 18 kids from a traveling squad to go officially visit a school for a day or two. Unofficial visit, you know, $75,000. That's crazy. That's unsustainable. But again, you know. And you're saying that's what they're paid, not what it costs. That's what they're paid. Yeah, that's what that's what they're paid to get them on campus, to get them to come to, to consider you know, not to get considered, but but to go through that unofficial visit to go to that particular college campus. Now, you know, is is that the 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 price that it is for every school? I mean, obviously that is not publicly said on any website. Like, hey, we've got all these great <laughs> players in our roster. These you are our appearance fees. Yeah, you want us to come see your college campus? Here's what it costs. No, so does it cost that much for every single school? Or are there some schools that get a, a possible discount uh, if if most of these kids are are local to that school and they don't have to actually fly them in? Is it less? Like you know, I don't know. But these are the kind of questions that sort of come up. And again, no rules are are good rules that cannot be enforced fairly. And so that's the problem I see with this, all this like, oh, we want to regulate it and make sure the college players, I don't know that once they're in college, there is a little more the NCAA can do. There's more that they can enforce. They could put more pressure on the schools themselves, which indirectly can put some pressure on the boosters. But when you're talking about recruiting, that's, and I don't know that there's really a whole lot even mentioned here that would impact 
or would have anything to do with the actual recruiting process other than really what, you know, Gene Smith mentions. But again, what's reflected in the comments from the actual Congress is is not that, you know, they're not getting into the, the, the weeds with that. It's more like, hey, let's talk about the issue, which is not quite as, as important right now. But then at the same time, I understand you got to start somewhere also. And that's the easiest part. That's the easiest place for the NCAA to start when it comes to NIL in terms of trying to get all the state bylaws together. I mean, that's one of the first things they're trying to do. I think Tommy Tuberville was talking about that. There's several bills that are up right now um, for, for, for legislation review. And some of the things are like, look at, you know, there's different state rules. People are playing by different rules. And we've heard several college coaches, Jimbo Fisher specifically, when it was thrown in his lap, oh, you know, they paid for their recruiting class and it cost them $30 million. And I think Nick Saban repeated that somewhere. And, and I mean, Jimbo Fisher, like immediately, um, you know, not insecure about that comment at all, had a press conference to rebut that. And, and what he just kept saying over and over again, we haven't broken any state Texas laws. And didn't say anything really about the NCAA so much. It was more like we didn't break any state Texas laws. And again, that goes back to the, you know, how can you really follow the money trail if you're the NCAA when you're dealing with a lot of people that are not employees of any universities and the kids themselves are not enrolled at any of these schools. So that's where, you know, the pressure comes in for, I think, the federal government more than what the colleges are doing with the players that are on the roster and enrolled, it's more, you know, how do you fix the recruiting process? You know, how can you put that pressure on the schools and the boosters uh, to some extent to where, you know, there's a punishment or it's risky for them to, you know, give kids money to go to schools. But the thing is, I mean, this is obviously something that's been happening far, far before NIL ever became a thing, you know, inducing kids to go to, to certain colleges, um, to get money. And, um, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, there's a, there's the good, the good part of it is that it's a little more above board these days. The bad part of it is that, um, because it's legal, uh, from a state standpoint that more people are trying to get involved and you've got, um, you know, kind of like wannabe agents and people that really don't have the kids' best interests at heart. They just see an ability to make some money off of the situation. There was an interesting comment also that was made, and I can't remember who made it, but there was some sort of uh, passive comment made about the people involved with these players and these recruits a lot of them are ex-players that are kind of pissed off that they missed out on NIL and now they're trying to stick it to the schools even more so and trying to get something out of it themselves kind of retroactively, which I thought was interesting. I I, I don't know that that's true. I, I, I haven't really gotten that vibe in my own experiences, but I thought that was kind of interesting. That I think is coming more from the schools. I think that's probably coming more from the universities that feel like, you know, some people are trying to leverage them and they're trying to suck them for every penny that they can possibly get through the NIL, you know, system the way it is. And they don't like that. And they want there to be some type of a cohesion and some type of regulations. 
Um, at the same time, have their cake and eat it too and not make the players employees, which, you know, that's where a whole nother conversation comes up. You know, Jay Bayless was on talking about making players employees and how it's really not that difficult and they can do it. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that goes along with the taxes and the, you know, player benefits. And a lot of these universities are just saying like, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. You know? And so um, they have tried to, uh, sidestep that, you know, if, as much as anything else, like that's sort of the, the line that seems like if that was crossed and changed and the federal government actually came in and said, listen, uh, university of Southern California, you're going to be playing these players and you're going to be paying them uh, a certain amount based on a certain amount. And, uh, they're going to be employees for you and they're going to have benefits. Um, that would be interesting. I mean, that would be, you know, I mean, with a private school like USC or Miami, et cetera, I, I don't know that the federal government even would have the ability to do something like that and not get sued by the universities. Everybody's so worried about the players suing them. I don't know that the universities wouldn't fire back and say, you know, you have no, no, no ability to, to, to do that. You know, it, it would go to the Supreme court. It would, it'd be a long drawn out process. Um, but it's something that the universities, because Uncle Sam, they don't want anything to do with that. They don't want that to even be talked about. Like that's 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 completely a, a non-starter for for the universities making the players employees. And again, it, again, we're talking about players that are enrolled. And 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 while that's an issue and that's kind of messy, I mean, that's not the the really out like crazy out of control thing. It's it's really more recruiting. And so I don't see a lot here where they've even started to scrape the surface of how to control that. I feel like that was a very depressing uh, diatribe for USC fans to listen to. I don't think it was a diatribe, but I do think I gave you enough time that you should have probably read every article at this point, and you should have some opinion on it yourself. I mean, is it a more positive opinion? Do you see some moves being made here by Congress that are going to alleviate some of the issues, some of the confusion with NIL, whether it be even with the college players right now, uh, collective bargaining, et cetera, unions, they don't have any of these things. Or do you think there's going to be something that can be done that can actually even impact the recruiting that uh, goes on with the NIL sort of carrot dangled in front of kids? I'm kind of on the same plane as you when you said that nothing will probably happen in the uh, the big boy court of the Senate or the House or whatever Supreme Court, whatever, nothing will get done there until something big and dramatic and completely outrageous that turns everyone against NIL and forces the hand of the lawmakers and politicians to have to step in and do something. It, it Like you said, it usually takes something big and grand and alarming and hurtful to happen to someone or some entity or some family or whatever for for politicians to get involved and be able to uh, say, hey, look, we're going to do something. It's going to take that and some uh, young congressman who wants to make a name for themselves and and change NIL and college football and all that kind of sorry, congresswoman or congressman to make a name for themselves and, and tackle this issue in college football and college athletics and make it more whole, you know, not this uh, web of confusion and 
secret money and dark money and lies and and people getting ripped off and bad contracts and harmful contracts and all those kinds of things. So this is only going to keep happening until that big thing happens. It's going to keep blowing, blowing. Think of it like a balloon blowing and blowing and blowing. And until it pops and something crazy happens, I don't think anything from from our from the government is going to uh, slow this down until that happens. Drew. Who's blowing who now? Now, on that subject. Um, don't clip Tommy- that. Don't clip that. Tommy Tuberville. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting to see him become a lobbyist uh, for uh, the universities. Always thought he was a bit of a lobbyist as a coach. You know, he and Mac Brown were the two guys that smelled of uh, politician when they were coaching college football. And uh, funny how he's transitioned over to becoming a little bit of a lobbyist. And he's trying to pass a couple bills that uh, would basically make NIL – like standard contracts for NIL, where it was basically like a salary cap where you could only make so much here and, and so much there. And again, this is the university's just not wanting to pay <laughs> players, you know, so much money, which again, I don't, I don't know how you would ever be able to get away with that. How, how can you tell Caleb Williams that, you know, he's only going to be able to make so much money after off of his Dr. Pepper deal. That just doesn't – I don't know how, how you can do that um, and not get sued by the players themselves, uh, right. seeing that the genie is out of the bottle as far as NIL uh, to begin with. Uh, but now you're trying to you know place these caps on players. And we do have another bill that is in the state Senate for California where several players within the Pac-12, um, I think a few from Cal, not surprising, wanted to sue the universities – uh, for not giving them employees, employee status. I think they wanted employee status or, or they wanted to be paid as employees, something of that nature. So they were suing uh, the universities and the Pac-12. And so that, I think, got pushed back to 2024. Um, that is still on the docket. And another sort of, you know, trying to bring a closer association uh, between uh, players being employees in universities being employers, which would obviously, again, change the game. And it's most it's mostly because of benefits and taxes and things. Uh, the non-exempt uh, status that universities have when it comes to taxes and uh, would kind of blow the doors open. But they do, you know, Jay Bayless brought up, uh, you know, something which, I, and I don't know the specifics on this, but said, you know, there's most universities, uh, there's a university near him, I don't know where he lives, uh, employee, uh, several um, thousand students. He said there were 6,000 students that were employees of the university. Um, I think the issue there um, is a little different because of the amount of money I, I think you're talking about with players. I mean, when you're talking about students that are employees of a university and they're working at the university, it's probably very, very low pay and um, more almost like an internship type of thing where they're getting paid also, uh, which is clearly not going to be the same amount of money um, that you're paying uh, a guy like Caleb Williams. And for benefits standpoint, you know, medical, because you're playing sports, you know, all of that that comes in uh, is, would, would, you know, you, you basically be changing college football into like a, a professional sport. It's kind of semi-pro right now. It would have to become professional. And I mean, the upside in all that, just ignoring what schools could actually pay benefits and pay these players, et cetera, and be involved uh, hands-on, is that you would then have more control. You know, if you were actually an employer as a university, then all of a sudden all bets are off. 
you know, you have way more control over employees than you do over these players. And you certainly would as the NCAA potentially have more control over these employees, uh, these players and what they were doing. And you would have maybe more control over anybody doing business with your company. You know, it starts, it changes all of a sudden, you know, now you're looking at these universities as companies, uh, which we don't really look at them, even though they're billion dollar um, and, and they're making lots of money. Uh, it's not looked at quite the same as, as you would under the guise of the private sector. And so, you know, obviously at that point, you know, any issues that happen and arise, um, they would go through, you know, a, a court system um, that would be a bit different. You know, right now the NCA, like I said, the court system, they they don't have a lot of ability in terms of enforcement. You know, they don't have subpoena power. They don't have a lot of um, things that they, that they can kind of do. That would change a bit. You know, you would have to bring in people and say, listen, you're going to be if you're going to be a part of this thing, just like the NFL does. If you're going to be a part of this thing, you're going to have to go through it certain ways. And everybody involved has to sort of be on board with that. And right now. It's a mixed bag in terms of who's on board with what and, you know, what the going um, bylaws are and how they are interpreted. I mean, we see this with just regular recruiting rules. I think we brought up before just the way USC does things from a compliance standpoint with recruiting now and how they handle us. You know, how they how they put pressure on us. of You know, you you will get your credentials stripped. You won't be able to cover the team. If you do interviews on campus with recruits, if you take pictures of recruits on campus, if mm-hmm. you, you know, if you make eye contact with recruits on campus, I mean, they're extremely strict USC compliance when it comes to recruiting. You've got schools out there that are that that set up interviews for media with recruits after visits. Mm-hmm. It's like what? Right on campus. They take photos of them arriving for. Uh, but and, and the, what the confusing part is we're allowed to take photos of them. If they're there for a camp, if they're there for camp, because the camp is not a recruiting event per se, which you kind of go, well, yeah, well, it is. Sort of. I mean, for the longest time, the NCAA had the asinine rule of you couldn't offer a player at a camp. They had to leave campus and come back to campus or they had to leave campus and you could call them on the phone to offer them a scholarship because the camp was not supposed to be a recruiting event. That's that's what you're dealing with, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's what you're dealing with the NCAA. And so then it becomes compliant department that has to interpret these asinine rules that the NCAA, you know, puts forth. And clearly the interpretation, just like the Bible or the Quran, everybody has their own interpretation of certain statements and how they're made and who they made and when they were made and and it's like, well, this doesn't really mean this, you know, I mean, like you said, you have kids there that are after, you know, a, an official visit or an unofficial visit, um, you know, the media can pull them aside and they've got their, their credentials, you know, for the games, like right on them and everything. It's like, yeah, man, you know, that, that school doesn't interpret the rule the same way USC does. So, you know, that would change if you had, you know, employers and employee relationships and things that like, you know, the way the NFL does it, you know, you've got a collective bargaining, you've got a union, you've got, there's, there's some things it's like, listen, we're making money off of this and this is going to be our bottom line. This is going to be our margin and everybody's sort of involved with it. But you know, the problem is with college football. And I mean, we just saw this in the PAC 12, there's the have and the have nots. And there's certain universities there that are, 
you know, on the teat and they're making money and they're doing well, but not because they're doing well. It's because they're in a conference that's doing well or they're, you know, they're they're giving something back from an educational standpoint, but they're not necessarily being able to go toe to toe revenue wise. And so that's where the conversation comes up as to if we were had to be employed, have employee employer relationship with all of our players um, and then treated everything that way. Yes, we would have more control over everything for sure, and it could be much more unified, but it would also be a much smaller um, outfit. You know, the, the, what, what Division One would be and what schools could be involved with such a system, um, it would not be, you know, the 100 plus, you know, 117 universities you see now. It would be much smaller and, you know, for, for better or for worse. And then the schools that can't do it. You know, do they at some point decide, hey, listen, we're going to do our own thing and, you know, NIL is not going to be a part of it. I talked about this before, you know, with the Big Ten and, you know, looking through the future and not necessarily wanting to do what the SEC does. You know, is there this weird AFL NFL type of thing that we end up in where it's like, well, we want to we want to work by these rules. These are the rules we're going to work by. And the guys that the kids we recruit, the players we have. They're going to play under this system. And this is if you want to come here, this is the system. Kind of like Ivy League, right? Like Harvard, Yale. It's like hey, you want to go to the Ivy League. Well, you're not going to get, you know, these 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 scholarships with all this other look added bonuses, and whatever. You're going to have to have a really high GPA. And that's just it. Like they made this again, talking about a gentleman's agreement. Like this is the standards we're going to have in order for you to play football here. And those are not going to be the football players that are going to put butts in the seats sort of thing. So yeah, there is that potential decision down the line from a conference standpoint that these schools get on the same page and they do certain things as well. So um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I still don't think that, you know, that's going to come down the pike of the federal government getting involved directly. Um, yeah. I, I would agree. Uh, I would disagree with Ted Cruz on that being something that's, you know, uh, coming down immediately. I, I think that uh it would be pretty surprising if they were going to make some big move all of a sudden that would, you know, unify or bring together these schools with some type of over uh, sweeping uh, legislation that would uh, impact NIL and college football. For the sake of this podcast, not going four hours on a bye week, which off a bye week, excuse me, makes no sense. So I'm going to have to move on. Gerard, we will be moving on to one of my favorite segments to do and one I was very excited to do is our USC football draft class round six. And if you don't know what we're talking about, Gerard and I back in 2021 made a made our hypothetical uh, recruiting cycle classes for 2021 and we drafted those prospects. Did uh, multiple rounds. I believe we did seven rounds. And, you know, there are certain rules you could only draft five stars within the first two rounds. Then the latter rounds, you could uh, offer players that had not been offered a scholarship from USC to help fill them out. So here we are, Gerard, round round six of a a piece that uh, was dead when we uh, first posted it, but it's, it's found a new life here on the podcast as we go back and uh, look at some of our picks. Recycled content. It's the best Recycled type of content. content. Are you ready to jump into your sixth round, sir? No, not at all, because I have no recollection of this, what happened, why it happened. But <laughs> maybe you can uh, fill us in with some 
context. Sometimes there's some refreshers, and I go, oh yeah, 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 I remember why I picked it. I pick that particular player and and then you have some backstory maybe as to why you picked a particular player, but more of it is just to show uh, how much we don't know rather than we do. Right. So I had the first pick in the sixth round and I went with sort of relates, maybe not really to a player we already talked about Jalen Harvey. I picked a cornerback out of Gaithersburg, Maryland, Quincy Orchard as well. Cornerback Ryan Barnes. Uh, Gerard, do you remember that name? No. Absolutely not. He was a three-star cornerback out of Maryland. Six foot two. I really liked his tape. He could play. uh, Went to Notre Dame. Dame. uh, Had offers from Clemson, Florida, Georgia, LSU, Oklahoma, Notre Dame. If I believe, if if I'm remembering correctly, he was a guy who kind of blew up kind of late. With some big time offers late in the process, and USC was one of those schools. I don't believe he ever made it out. I could be wrong on that, but again, this is before you know an actual DMV pipeline was built uh, under Lincoln Riley. So chances are he did not make it out. But uh, I, I mentioned in my write up that I wasn't going to let you be the only person to pick a prospect from Maryland. So I had to get down and uh, get one of my own. So I picked uh, Ryan Barnes. I don't really know what he's done. At Notre Dame, um, I'm going to say he hasn't done much. Crickets. That's me Always. pulling up. I thought I thought you would say something to to help me. Uh, Always, I dude. I mean, you you you. Here we go. He made he made. Trail all right, stop it. Stop it. Stop of... it. Enough. Enough. He uh he played in four games as a freshman. Played in one game as a sophomore, and he made his debut uh against Tennessee State this year. So. Really has not done uh, much of anything at uh, Notre Dame. So I'm not off to a great start. So let's jump into your pick. With your first pick of the uh, sixth round, you drafted Spanaway Washington athlete Will Latu. Okay. Latu, famous name among football circles. (laughs) And I do remember Will Latu. As a, I feel like he was playing a little running back. He was playing a little safety um, and uh, was a decent athlete that you knew kind of was going to put on some weight and be able to play a line of scrimmage. So I felt like there was some upside, uh, like that he played on both sides of the ball, like that he was very physical. Um, and so I felt like decent with that pick. I do remember Will Latu. I don't really know what's happened to him. I believe he went to Washington. But I can't really find a bio or anything for him for his time at Washington. He may uh, no longer be there. It's not like we would put something on the docket and then be completely unprepared to actually tell you guys what happened with any of this stuff. We were just going to play it by ear, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we're we're keeping it loose. You know, I I, I take improv. I can uh, I can. I can make stuff up on the fly. Uh, I'm gonna say we're. I'm gonna say we're both uh, as stalemate in this first. These first picks of the okay. So just a quick Google of Will Latu. Don't have a lot of. Um, don't have a lot of statistics from him at Washington, but I do have a Will Latu now at North Texas defensive lineman. But this is not the same guy because this is Ulysses Texas. He's from so see that Will Latu name, buddy. That just. Uh, 
He did. Yeah. He did enter the transfer portal. He did enter the transfer portal, and that's all I got. I don't think he's anywhere right now. So, looks like he entered it in 2021. So we're both uh, not to a great start with this sixth round, but that's okay. That's okay. There's still a couple. I more felt picks. good about Will Latu, man. I really felt like that was gonna. He was gonna be a guy that would be um, at least somewhat. Yeah, he went to Trinity High School. So this dude at North Texas is not the Will Latu that we're looking for. Um, yeah, and I have to. Um, Oh, wait, Abilene Christian, no, that's not off to tackle. The Will Latu name, dude. It's a, it's a popular name for football, it's a man. Popular I, at least, name. I at least get points for that. Do I get points for, like, if there's uh, a, I'll Will, give, I'll give you a, a Will Latu who does well at some point, you know, is, yeah, like, uh, not the same guy exactly, but, hey, it's, his name is Will Latu, so I get, like, some some dap for just yeah, a, I'll, I'll give associating the name with good football. Yeah, yeah I, I'll give you that. I'll give you that point. Uh, let's go to my second pick of the – Sixth round, I went with the, you know, I stopped by Louisiana and I got myself a running back, Logan Diggs, who was a prospect that I liked out of uh, out of the area, the bayou. And uh, he also ended up at Notre Dame. And this is a good, uh, I think, a good win for me. He ran for 230 30 yards as a true freshman with three scores. Pretty good. And then 2022. He rushed for 821 yards and four touchdowns. So I think uh, I think this is you know a pretty good player, decent player. I don't think he's played this year though, which is which is not a good uh, uh, statistic fact for this uh, this draft board. But he has been productive in college, so I, I think I think I'm on the up I'm I'm on the upswing for the sixth round. Yeah, I put in Logan Diggs and I get LSU running back, junior, uh, 6'1", 2'15". Oh, yep, you're right. He has transferred to LSU. This is a old bio. And so this year he has 24 carries, 156 yards, averaging 6.5 yards a carry, and a touchdown. So, I mean, he's at least playing. He felt like he wasn't getting enough playing time, obviously, at uh, Notre Dame. And so he decided... To go back home, uh, he's behind the uh, Noah Kane, who we know is a former five-star uh, that transferred over to uh, to to LSU. And Trey Bradford, I think, was also a Oklahoma transfer um, who uh, is now at LSU. I liked Trey Bradford coming out of high school, but he only has four carries, one yard, one touchdown this season. Uh, don't know, maybe he's hurt or what have you, um, but hasn't been very productive in his college football career. So while he wasn't a part of that draft, just a name that popped up here that I saw and went, oh, I remember. I remember uh, Trey Bradford. And, um, yeah, uh, LSU's got a, a few guys that USC has recruited over the years. They have uh, been consistently in Louisiana for running backs. It's somewhere where they have gone back in recent years for running backs. Haven't had a whole lot of success uh, since Joe McKnight. but um, definitely a place where they feel like they can get a little traction uh, regardless of the coaching staff, you know, these multiple coaching staffs, this is uh clay Helton coaching staff uh, going after Logan Diggs. And I do remember Logan Diggs out of high school. That was a little bit later of a recruitment as well. And he liked USC a lot, but I don't mm -hmm. think USC got him in for the official visit. I think he went to Notre Dame first and basically committed to Notre Dame, like right after I think he took a visit there. Gerard, with your next pick, we don't have to do a lot of Google searching for what happened to this young man because with your second pick, you took 
Offensive tackle Mason Murphy out of oh, San Juan okay. Capistrano. So an easy one, Gerard. And that is going to round out your offensive line class in this class that's draft. A, that's a good exercise. offensive line class, man. I, I know my top guy. I want to see him get some more reps and uh, play a little better at Clemson. But, um, yeah, Mason Murphy, you know, that's a guy that I still kind of feel like maybe he'd be better on the interior. Um, but he's gotten some reps and he's played a little bit. Um, at offensive tackle and um, you know we've seen him still kind of trying to to get a foothold on a starting position at, at USC your uh, offensive line class from this exercise was Mason Murphy Tristan Lay and Kingston Suamitea I think I uh, I think yeah. I fucked that up but we're uh, we're okay you're okay so yeah, nice pick there. Yeah, nice pick la, there. La, 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 and then with my third pick of this round, I went with offensive tackle Maximus Gibbs at a Bellflower St. John Bosco. Max Gibbs. It it hey, listen, there was that what spring ball we heard, you know, he was looking good. And actually, you know, it was the spring, or it was kind of the winter workouts, I think. Uh, when Lincoln Riley took over, that's when we were hearing all this stuff about Max Gibbs. He lost some weight and of all the guys that they had, they actually, Josh Henson was really excited about Max Gibbs and then, um, poof, something happened. And, uh, he was, he was, uh, he was, I think he was kind of shipped off to the portal as much as he went into the portal. Yes. Went off to play for Dion at, uh, Jackson, is it Jacksonville state or Jackson state? Jackson State, yeah. Jackson State, and then the next year, Dion left for Colorado, and then Gibbs did not follow. Did he not didn't the follow, church. and that's a little bit of a red flag there, because I think Dion was taking anybody and everybody he could that he thought could actually contribute for him at Colorado. Wasn't a uh, a Louis bag, I guess. So yeah, I mean, I was always rooting for Max. He was a hard worker, had a lot to overcome in getting that weight down, and. Flash definitely at USC, but obviously did not work out. And he had some uh, off the field issues and had to uh, get those addressed. But uh, I wish him the best. I, w- I wonder where he's at right now. But yeah, that one was, uh, you know, I, I was going for the potential there. I, I'm not going to apologize for that pick. I saw the potential, baby. I saw the potential. Six foot six, get him down to 320. I think you got yourself an NFL lineman right there. So, uh, Gerard, with your third pick, of the sixth round, you took safety Jaden Sulcum. Sulcum. I'm gonna guess you don't remember that name. Jaden Sulcum. I feel out of Georgia. Out of Georgia. Look at you. Yeah, yeah. I do remember him a bit, and that was one where I believe he was coming off an injury, but I did like his earlier film. USC kind of played around recruiting him a little bit. Um, there was a few defensive backs from Georgia that USC was, was messing around with. And he's a guy who just flashed on film and, uh, I liked him. He, he was a little taller I think he was like six, two and also played some wide receiver. And so again, a guy, both sides of the ball. Um, but vaguely, you know, remember like his recruitment or what really happened with him. I felt like that just didn't, I don't remember where he signed, but it was like, oh, really? You know, like, I, I don't know if it was like an academic issue or what have you. What was the? Uh, it's, it's very much not an academic issue no? because he signed with Stanford. He signed with Stanford. Okay. Wow. Okay. I I, I just remember that like he didn't get recruited 
very much by those SEC schools, you know, like Georgia yeah. and, and Florida. Like they, they were kind of smart in, for him. They were kind of involved with him early, but then it sort of fell off, and um, and then and then ended up at Stanford. So yeah, I could, didn't really pay attention um, to uh, where he was going. You know, after the fact that you know USC kind of not really recruiting him very much. Um, but, uh, yeah, I haven't heard his name very much. Uh, certainly didn't see hear his name very much against, uh, USC here, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So I, I have to think that, um, maybe not the best pick. Yeah. Uh, has not done anything at Stanford. He has played in maybe, I believe he's played up to f- in 14 games so far in his, in his career. And he's had he has five tackles this season, but yeah, not a uh, not a major role player for the uh, the Cardinal for the Cardinal. So we're really uh, slogging it out here. You have the lead just based on your Mason Murphy pick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're listen, we're on the low end of the target list at this point. You know, we're sort of restricting and limiting ourselves to guys that you know might have offers but are not you know four stars or five. like there's certain rules here so we have to reiterate that it's not like we could have just picked anybody and oh i decided you know to, to go after sloco man i had all these other choices or what have you so uh we were sort of you know we were trying to parallel how it goes with the draft and sort of what's available you know and trying to meet with needs and what have you and trying to um create some handicaps here so it was a little more realistic little more realistic indeed. And then I took with my fourth pick, safety Isaiah Nwokabia out of Skyline, Texas. I'm not sure if you remember that name. He was a safety prospect, three-star. I was looking at him to re- to replace Isaiah Polamau. Uh, he's a strong safety type guy. He ended up signing with SMU. Red-shirted, has made two starts. Made two starts last year. I'm not sure what he's doing. He he did suffer a season-ending injury last year. So uh, another pick that has not uh, uh worked out for your boy shot, uh, shotgun Gerard. <laughs> your boy shotgun. Um, yeah, this might have not worked out for shotgun either. So bad. Um, I think. You know, what would be interesting is just kind of like looking at the ratio of success within like a good draft class and sort of what happens with these classes. Right. Because, you know, you could say, oh, man, you you know, you didn't do well in the seventh round. It's like, OK, but, you know, how many NFL teams year per year do well in the seventh round? How many guys do you have from a draft class actually contribute to a team, you know, over the course of you know, five seasons, let's say? So, yeah, from that step, that's basically how you would have to rate success with this. You know, did you get a draft class, which the majority of players at least played or started in, you know, four years of college? Like if you get two years of starts out of player, I would say that's successful. I would say, you know, offensive linemen that, you know, if you get uh, two years worth of starts from that player, that's that's a, that's successful, you know. I mean, they're not all going to be all conference players and, and what have you. And again, this isn't recruiting, you know. A recruiting class you could stack, you could have a class that you know. Let's say you get twenty five guys in a class, you could end up getting like sixteen players out of that class that all end up being like good players. Uh, several of them being all conference players getting drafted. Like that would be a hell of a class, but that's recruiting. 
You know, with this is drafting, there's limitations. So I, I would say you'd have to look back at it, you know, through where you get, you know, all these guys that have graduated and look back and say, okay, this is the amount of guys that actually played and were impactful for their teams and then kind of grade the class that way. Gerard, you rounded out the final two picks of this round and you won it right here with the fourth pick of the sixth round. This was all you, buddy. So congrats to you with the fourth pick of the sixth round. You took wide receiver Xavier Worthy out of Fresno, California. Wow. Xavier Worthy was available then, huh? Interesting. He wasn't really, he wasn't really, he wasn't, (laughs) (laughs) he wasn't highly rated. He was the number 62 wide receiver in the nation. Uh, number 511, uh, excuse me, that is ranking 511 and not height wise, but yeah, you, uh, you got a steal and you probably, um, I don't know, won exec of the year with this pick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with Xavier worthy, I know thinking Fresno guys, you know, they, have not necessarily panned out here. Um, there's uh, several instances, and certainly Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma fans would know that more than anybody because they kind of had a bit of a monopoly there in Fresno for years, getting some of the top players um, out of the state. And USC just did not recruit very well. They offered a bunch of those guys and just didn't get them. But again, a lot of those guys didn't pan out either. So it's a little bit like, yeah, you're not landing guys that didn't pan out. So whatever. But Xavier Worthy has been one of the few that has actually made an impact for his team. Uh, We saw him against Alabama, dropped a pass, which you're like, that's Xavier Worthy. He's not consistent. You know, he's kind of had the the early Taj Washington sort of syndrome. Um, Taj, though, has definitely stepped up over the years and become more consistent and becoming more of a go-to threat for USC. Um, Xavier's still a little bit like, you know, he's he's, uh, to keep with the Fresno – theme a little John Baxter ish and that uh, you're going to get big plays and then you're going to have some plays that, you know, are kind of like the mundane where things go pear shaped. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's good for uh, what is it? The sixth round you said? Yeah. Six sixth round, round yes. right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's, that's good. That's, um, you know, a guy that's probably going to get drafted, you know, is he going to be a first round pick? I don't know. He might be more like second, but um, certainly got the speed and certainly uh, a playmaker. And I mean, that's, can't really ask for a whole lot more, you know, in the sixth round. And you ended it with uh, running back Brandon Campbell, a former USC signee turned USC transfer. That was, what did I get a double pick there? What do you mean? I ended it. You have the final two picks. I don't know what's going on here. (laughs) How did that work? Did I trade for a pick? What did I do? Yeah. Maybe you (laughs) traded uh, one of your picks. Traded an Xbox for a pick. Yeah. Traded in a pick, got an extra pick, and he turned that into. You got, you got, you got the best out of that one, then. Um, But uh, so Brandon Campbell, okay, interesting. Maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe it just works out that way. I got to take two picks, and then you get the first two picks in the next draft. I don't, I don't remember, but uh, Brandon Campbell was, yeah, he was good looking player. You know, little utility back, um, had a little flash there, ran a um, a decent time there uh, at one of the opening camps, and. he looked like a decent player, you know, for, for USC when he was there, but um, a little off the field stuff going on and kind of knew he was going to be a guy that uh, wouldn't be around long if uh, things weren't working out. Because I remember during the recruiting process, it was an odd uh, sort of um, back and forth between he and Chris Claiborne, who was on the staff at that point, just as an analyst. 
and he was pissed off after USC had lost the game. He was like, I'm trying to call my jinx. My jinx isn't picking up. And like he hit up Chris Claiborne and Chris Claiborne had basically texted him back. Hey, Mike jinx is in a meeting. Um, he'll call you back, you know, when he can. And Brandon Campbell, like put that on Instagram. <laughs> and everybody's like, Uh Oh, that's not a good look. I mean, what are you doing? Putting, you know, conversations with coaches on Instagram. So yeah, that was a little bit of a, a red flag and a little bit of a, yeah, man, if things ain't working out for him playing time wise, this dude is like the, on the first boat out. And so uh, he went out with, uh, you know, that, that staff and, um, where did he end up? Tra- when did he transfer to SMU or T? Where did he go? I thought it was Houston. Houston. He yeah, was- Houston. I mean, he's from Houston. He's from the Katy area. So um, that was like one of the only running backs that Mike Jinks ever signed at USC. Mike Jinks, I think, signed more linemen at oh, USC. That yeah. was a, that was a, that was a, yeah that was a uh, that was a running joke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody always said, oh, no, he's a good recruiter. He's a good recruiter. And I'm like, but if you're not recruiting at your position and protecting your position, then I would argue that you're not a good recruiter. Like, that should be the first thing. <laughs> like, you need to protect your position. You need to sign good players at your position. You need to have depth at your position. That needs to be the first and foremost thing. Like, if you can uh, recruit well at other positions, too, you know, and, and you know, have an impact at other positions, that's awesome. That's what the elite guys do. You know, the elite guys – they, they take care of their position, but then they also have some influence over guys that might be at other positions. But, um, yeah, that was kind of a, a bit of an issue for, for USC there. They they had trouble, like, recruiting running backs for a while. Granted, I mean, they threw the ball 60 times a game, and you know. But then, at the other hand, they were, they were getting beat out by Oregon for players, and Oregon wasn't putting anybody in the NFL, had no history with putting guys in the NFL to receiver position. And um, ran a scheme that wasn't really all that wide receiver friendly under Mario Cristobal. So it was like, okay, so tell this so, 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 we're, we're throwing the ball 60 times a game. We're not getting any receivers. We're getting beat out for guys like Troy Franklin by Oregon. And then at the same time, we're also not really being able to recruit running backs because we throw the ball so much. So, yeah, it was a little bit of a conundrum there for the Trojan fan following recruiting. And it was just frustrating for me because I'm – playing devil's advocate and having to defend the recruiting practices of USC. It's like, I, I mean, I don't want this just to be, you know, this negative sort of thing. I always want to sort of present both sides of the story, but you know, at some point the, the fans are always going to be on one side and that side <laughs> is with pitchforks and torches and you're on the other side trying to keep the gate closed as, as, as long as possible. All right, Gerard, with that, we desperately need to take a break because somehow this first half got away from me. Got away from us. Got away from this podcast. A break? I thought we were done. Long. I thought that I thought we got to leave some question in, and then uh, no, I, the time is not real when we do the composite two star recruits. So we're gonna take a break and come back, and we'll we'll, we'll even see if we come back after this uh, this little mariachi ditty. So we'll be right back, maybe. Right, Gerard, I guess we came back because I I feel compelled 
to finish out the rest of this show. But we went two hours in the first half, and I don't really know how because we were basically saying there's nothing really to talk about. And yet here we are. Yet here we are, Gerard. And as always, how was your break? <laughs> it was uh, it was wonderful. As it was, always, I was contemplating how we could stretch that out as long as we did. And I uh, still don't have an answer for that. But nevertheless, I think sometimes it's when we don't have anything specific to talk about, ground and specific top talking points to hit, we just kind of sort of meander a little too much. And when I say we, I mean me. Oh, yeah. I, I think everyone was clear on that, Gerard. I think everyone was clear who you meant. But let's try to move through the second half with some pace. I'm actually not convinced we're going to actually do listener questions because at this, pay, this rate, I'm not going to get out of here till like 2 a.m. in the morning. So right now I have us doing only two questions of the submitted questions. But we'll see if we even get to that point because we do have some stuff to talk about. So let's see how far off the rails we get here in the second half of this show. And to start this show, or the second half of this show, this should be probably the quickest segment of this show. But uh, we talked about last week how Miami five-star 2025 defensive lineman Armando Blunt put USC in his top five. Well, you mentioned that USC has no chance well, we're going to update that to USC had no chance because he went ahead and very much committed to the University of Miami off an official visit. So all I got to say is, Gerard, that was fast. That was fast. Next. Next. Let's jump into Friday Night Lights. And I'm going to let, well, you're going to do most of the talking here. And you've done most of the talking with uh, this whole show. But I actually went out to game a game on Friday to see wide receiver Ryan Pelham. But Ryan Pelham didn't suit up for that game, even though I was told he was going to suit up for that game. So I did not really get to watch anything on a Friday Night Lights, which, you know, I wasn't really complaining about. They were destroying this team at halftime, bye week, went home at halftime. But the only notable thing was that... uh couple of the USC stars of the future showed up, or the present, because Zachariah Branch, Zion Branch, Malachi Nelson, and Makai Lemon pulled up to the game because Malachi Nelson's younger brother, Jew Nelson, who is a six foot four, 190-pound wide receiver, plays for Milliken, transferred from Los Al to Milliken, and he actually caught a touchdown pass uh, in the first half of that game. Unfortunately, the boys... Had not arrived yet, so they were they weren't able to see that one happen. They were definitely trying to see one in the first half, but they did leave at halftime. But uh, yeah, that was like the the main kind of guy I was keeping my eye on because obviously Ryan Pelham was not playing. He did chat with the uh, the USC Trojans that pulled up and actually learned that uh, the bra- branch's father, uh, the branch, what am I trying to say? The branch brothers. That's it. The branch brothers. Their father actually went to Long Beach Milliken. So a lot of connections going on there, Drug. Yes, the branches, the the branch famed branch family, which um, is uh, making its market USC this season. Um, now you were local, Yoko, and it's always great to go home at halftime. It's very, very rare where you have that opportunity. And even though you go and you're there and things didn't work out, leaving at halftime seems so like. I don't know, liberating 
like, oh my god, I get to go home early on a Friday night. You're like, you get out to the to the parking lot, and like everybody's still there, and you don't have to deal with all the traffic getting out of the school. It's just uh, unless it was Polly Sarah at halftime. Yeah, ooh, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, and we've been at a couple games this season where just from penalties, uh, the game has gone on for way, way too long, and you're like, dude, there's a penalty every play. Like, are you serious? And you started looking at your watch, like, okay, come on, man, let's get this, let's get this going. But I was um, semi-local. I was out here in the IE. I got to see Ranch Cucamonga play against Bishop Amon. I got some family ties to Bishop Amont. Uh, Bishop Amont hasn't been very good, Chris Trevino, uh, oh, like okay. they were. Uh, they used to be a national power back in the days when they had Dalen McCutcheon, Ralph Brown, Corey Miner. They used to be one of the best, most talented teams in Southern California year in. And you're out. Uh, but they have kind of fallen on hard times in terms of uh, the amount of talent that they produce. They did pick it up uh, a couple years ago. They got started to improve a little bit. Uh, but uh, recently, not I mean, I say recently, I mean like this season, they haven't been very good. In fact, I don't know if they've even won a game this season. So Oof. looking at it, I was thinking, okay, Rancho's got some horses. This is probably going to be a game that's going to be over at halftime. I really thought that, but it wasn't. Oh, no. Bishop Lamont came to play. Bishop Lamont, they don't have a bunch of guys, don't have a bunch of marquee names, but they got a pretty good football team, and they were scrappy, and they tackled well. And Ranch Cucamonga, on the flip side, they've got talent like they usually do, but they don't really have a quarterback. They're running a two-quarterback system, and you know what they say, when you have two quarterbacks, you have no, you have no quarterbacks. So that's kind of where Ranch Cucamonga is at this point, and they had some turnovers. They played sloppy. And they just couldn't get real breathing room against Bishop Lamont till really the end of the game. It was kind of the end of the game uh, where uh, they were able to kind of open it up a little bit with a turnover. And we're talking like, you know, there was only like four minutes left in the game. And it ended up being 31-20. Wrench um, Cucamonga undefeated on the season. We went down there to go see Elijah Gordon, the three-star safety, who got a scholarship offer from USC over the summer at the Elite Camp. An interesting scholarship offer because – you know, at that point in time, they were basically telling Jason Mitchell that uh, they were kind of full up and they were going in a different direction. So we kind of thought, OK, you know, that sort of safety, maybe outside linebacker ish position. They've got somebody who is it? Well, they didn't have anybody and they went and offered Elijah Gordon after he ran a 4-4 at their camp. But at this point in time, talking to Elijah Gordon, you know, they're still kind of um, not uh, ready to pull the trigger, I think, with him yet. And the same can be said for several other schools. I think they just want to see him play a little more. I got to see him play against Bishop Lamont. He had a decent game. He probably had four or five tackles. Uh, he had a really good pass breakup towards the end of the game. It was a third down or maybe even a fourth down. Lamont had the ball. And I think at that point, um, you know, I think Rancho was up like maybe four points. Um, I know Bishop Lamont did miss a PAT. So it made it one of those things where it was no longer a field goal game. It was a touchdown game. Um, but Amont was, was, was getting some big plays. They were running the ball kind of well, uh, but they ended up in the fourth down and they threw the ball out. Um, and it was, you know, kind of, uh, just like, kind of like a, 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 I think a mesh route over the top and uh, maybe it was a 10 yard throw and, and Gordon was there, you know, he was there step for step, uh, good deflection on the ball. Uh, that was uh, the turnover that they kind of needed, um, you know, to 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 get the ball back. And again, at the very end of the game, kind of Rancho was able to open up 
a little bit there. I think, you know, big question still about Elijah Gordon is, you know, is he a guy you need to put near the line of scrimmage right now? Right. Kukamonga is using him kind of like they used Christian Pierce last year, where he's a kind of a semi outside linebacker. Basically he's a nickelback, but he's playing a lot near the line of scrimmage, which is, you know, understandable at the high school level, you're going to see a lot more teams that run the ball better than they pass the ball. Not a lot of teams have elite quarterbacks. And so at that slot position, you can do a lot of damage. You you can really affect the game much more than being a single high or being a corner or anywhere else. Uh, but the physicality is not quite there. Uh, certainly not to the level with Christian Pierce. Christian was a guy. I know they were probably ranked. Well, Christian probably ranked a little higher, but he was still a three-star. But when I saw Christian, I was like, okay, this guy is a four-star. This guy's a dude that USC has been losing locally here to, to, to Ohio State, to Oklahoma, to all these schools over the past few years. And this is a guy that they finally got. And I still believe that about Christian Pierce. I think he's going to be a guy that's going to play for USC and he's going to contribute for USC. Uh, with Elijah Gordon, I think there's still just questions. You know, he's got the athleticism. He's got the length. But is, is he a football player? Is he a guy that with the instincts and the awareness through the line of scrimmage, can he make an impact? Is he physical enough? And I think those are the questions that the universities probably have still as well. One player that I saw that I really didn't know much about going in, and I had I watched Ranch Kukumunga play a couple of times during the offseason, but uh, didn't really notice player. Um, again, wasn't kind of looking out for him. You know, when you've got guys that are, that are targets that have scholarship offers, we kind of focus on those players because those are the players that you guys at home want to see. You want to see, you know, these guys at USC is recruiting hard and, and might get in the next, next cycle. Rodney Sermons is a name that is very familiar. And speaking of Bishop Amon, in the Dalen McCutcheon era, Rodney uh, Sermons was a player that was one of the better players in Southern California that ended up going to USC, running back that played at USC, uh, kind of at the tail end of the Paul Hackett era. I can't remember. I feel like he did not play for Pete Carroll. Maybe he played in that first year uh, under Pete Carroll, but he was really at the tail end of the pack, Paul Hackett era and was kind of an all-purpose back, kind of played a little fullback, but was – a talented enough and athletic enough to play some running back also uh, was a really good player. And uh, his son, uh, Rodney Sermons Jr., is now at Ranch Cucamonga. He's actually got two sons there, but Rodney was the guy that kind of caught my eye. And just watching walkthroughs and what have you, he's got the height, he's got some length, he's got speed. And he's playing cornerback and he's playing running back. Didn't get to see him play a lot of running back. I think he only got like maybe two reps at running back near the goal line. He's a guy that if I was Ranch Cucamonga, I'd have him – playing some more offense because he's got speed. He's got talent. He ran a kick kickoff back for a touchdown against the mob, a, a touchdown that might've been the touchdown that would have opened it up a bit for Ranch Cucamonga. Unfortunately, it got called back Ooh. for holding, uh, but I got the video. So it doesn't really, you know, Hey, it's on video. It doesn't matter. Um, it was still a good run and it still showed his speed and it shows still showed a guy that uh, is in the 2026 class. Who is another one you need to add to your list of names to know. And I think that 2026 class is going to be a good one. 2025, not so much, but 2026, 2027. If, um, you know, California can keep these players local and uh, they don't go get, you know, the IMG or Miami central or whatever for NIL, um, it's going to be a really good class, a really deep class. There's, there's some definite playmakers in that class and even some good linemen that are showing early. Uh, so Rodney Sermons, yeah, a name that's very familiar for Trojan fans. Rodney Sermons Jr. needs to be a name that is uh, going to be familiar for Trojan fans for the 2026 class at Rancho Cucamonga via 
via, I be, uh, believe, Bishop Lamont. So, you know, they started out where his dad started out and uh, decided to go over uh, to uh, Ranch Cucamonga. How uh, how old did you feel? Uh, not as old as Ryan, because okay. I think Ryan was like, uh, yeah, I think I think Ryan felt a little a little older. Um, you know, I go back to the uh, Dalen McCutcheon, Corey Miner, Ralph Brown days, but I was like not even out of high school at that point. I mean, those guys were kind of like a year ahead of me, I think, even um, in high school, you know. So, yeah, that I, I don't feel quite as young that, you know, he's got kids now because, you know, I, I, I could have kids now. So uh, I think with Ryan, though, he's like, holy cow, man. <laughs> like, I remember writing sermons, uh, you know, I was already probably graduated out of college at that point uh, for Ryan. Okay, and USC football was actually on the road in the south. Shotgun Spratling was actually out in Georgia to check out some USC commits. The first one being Cameron Fountain, the four-star edge prospect out of Booker T. Washington. Uh, He played on Thursday, so Shotgun was out in the Atlanta, Georgia area, was able to catch him, watch him play. And they pulled out a 10 to 6 win, so a narrow, narrow nail biter in a defensive battle. And Shotgun put up an interview with Cameron uh, about you know his standing with USC. It does sound like he's going to take some more visits down the line, but Shotgun did mention that you know he is definitely a raw kind of guy. But you just see the talent, you see the ability. Uh, in that uh, athletic body type, you see why he is so re- highly ranked in the top 50. He was very disruptive. I think he had him unofficially for about six pressures, or excuse me, four pressures, six tackles, four tackles for a loss, and two sacks, including one on a fourth and goal, and caught a two-point inversion. And he was actually the punter as well. He had a 60-yard punch. So did a little bit of everything for uh, Booker T. Washington, and you can uh, check out the video that he put up about him and then uh, the interview that he did with him, which is a VIP piece on USFL.com. Yeah, I was going to ask if the video went up. I know we put the ISO video up on Juju Lewis, but I didn't know if we got the It's camera. all up. It's okay. all up. Baby. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, like he said, you know, kind of raw, but definitely a guy athletically, size-wise, you kind of see, you know, the potential there. I was surprised that USC didn't have anybody there actually to watch mm-hmm. him during the bye week. Um, but we did. So there you go. Maybe we, <laughs> we, we cover that. I, I think that was uh, a Booker T's first win for the season as well. Oh, so, a little, so a little shotgun sprattling luck there sprinkled on a wet day down there in Atlanta. Cause he had texted me earlier and he goes, dude, I don't know what's going to happen with this game because he like showed me a picture of like a flooded street. He was like, it's just been downpouring here. Um, but luckily it was a Thursday game and about an hour before the game started kind of opened up a little bit and it cleared out. And so we got some video and we got some good photos and uh, we got a little bit of an evaluation. Um, Mr. Cameron Fountain, who uh, yes, is going to be pursued by schools down there in the South and um, USC is going to have to uh, try to fend them off. And then the other game that Shotgun hit up, he was pulling double duty down there. Is obviously, he's in Georgia. He has to go check out USC's five-star 2026 quarterback commit, the number one prospect in 2026, uh, Juju Lewis, out there at New Carrollton. Uh, they played a homecoming game against Jenkins and whooped them 47-14. to 14. It was a very quick night for Julian Lewis. He went six for six for 105 yards and two touchdowns in the first half. And then he was pretty much done 
for the day. Obviously, we would have sent five stars only JP, but he was still recovering from his illness, so he was not able to, you know, go down and get some five star action with Juju Lewis. But Shaka was able to see Juju Lewis, and I don't think he's put the interview up yet with him, but you can definitely see the video and the highlights of his quick work against Jenkins. Against Leroy Jenkins. Yeah, Leroy. six for six, 105, two touchdowns, easy work. You know, uh, not not a, a, a stressful game for uh, Lewis. But you can see a little, you know, a little running there. You know, he's got quick feet. He's very good in the pocket. Uh, got his head on the swivel. And a guy that, again, we talk about, you know, in terms of these quarterbacks at USC has recruited in the prior recruiting classes, Lewis fits the bill. You know, he's definitely in terms of the profile and the attributes stylistically, he is what USC uh, and, you know, more specifically Lincoln Riley have been able to win with in the past. So he's a guy, uh, another one, you know, that USC is going to have to, you know, he's in Georgia, you know, Georgia's going to come after him, you know, Florida state's going to come after him, you know, Miami's going to come after him and et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, it's going to be one of those guys that we're going to have to wait and see, but, you know, certainly on paper, nobody's done it at the quarterback position like Lincoln Riley. I mean, you could talk all you want about Nick Saban winning national championships, but for quarterbacks, there's no better uh, coach to play for than Lincoln Riley. All right, Gerard, that's going to wrap up Friday Night Lights. We're going to transition into the college game. We don't have a recruiting angle for this week because obviously USC did not play a game last, uh, unless you have a recruiting angle for the bye week, Gerard. I don't. <laughs> okay, okay. Just, uh, just checking. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, it was the bye week for modern day, and uh, those guys were off uh, visiting other schools not named USC. And so uh, it was, uh, you know, kind of uh, a missed bye week uh, from that standpoint. So we'll see, you know, going forward is um, modern day and Bishop Amont or Bishop, um, Bishop Amont, Bishop Gorman, St. John Bosco had a bellflower. Uh, they uh, align up with a little more, you know, regular schedule on Friday nights and they can get some of those kids down to campus because, you know, that's kind of what uh, they need. You know, they need that sort of um, influx of, of local talent. I am still of the opinion that you've got to build that fence around uh, Southern California locally if you're USC. You know, it's not Nebraska. It's not Notre Dame. It's not one of these colleges where even Oklahoma, you know, you just don't have enough talent locally that – that's where you start and that's where you build um, USC. You've got that talent locally, uh, regardless of whether it's us, uh, not quite as many guys getting drafted out of California or not, dude, all you need is 20 plus guys every year. There's plenty of those guys, you know, coming out of California um, to, to be able to at least, you know, the top guys every year, you know, you get the top, say you get the majority of the top 12 players, out of, uh, you know, California each, each year, I think, you know, that's that's a good place to start uh, if you're USC. And so, you know, right now, Bosco and Modern Day is, is kind of like they've got a, a, a monopoly on those top guys. And so that's kind of where you got to begin. And then, you know, you can, you know, pick these guys like Ryan Pelham or maybe some of the kids at Centennial. You know, there's there's a few, you know, there are other schools, you know, obviously Sierra Canyon's got some good players as well. 
Um, but USC's got to kind of change the narrative there at uh, St. John Bosco, which has been a narrative for quite a long time. But now it's kind of the narrative that's bleeding over to, to modern day, which they've actually had some success in the past with modern day. It's just more, you know, the Lincoln Riley era. They haven't had much success uh, outside of, you know, getting Damani Jackson late there uh, when uh, Lincoln Riley was hired, which which was a bit of a battle at the end with Alabama. I forgot to mention that obviously with the bye week for Friday Night Lights, USC coaches were out and about. Dennis Simmons was at uh, Sierra Canyon to check out the uh, Xavier Jordan or DJ Jordan, as he likes to go to right now. Uh, Dante Williams was at Los Alamitos in Mission Viejo. And no coach was at my game. And then uh, I believe uh, Roy Manning was out on the East Coast. I think he went to see Elijah Newby and then stopped by to see Jalen Harvey at his game. So those were just a couple of coaches' locations out there uh, for Friday those are the only ones I saw kind of on social media and where they were at. Again, no one was at my game. Gerard, we have to talk about quickly, briefly, USC at Arizona for week four, their first road game of the season. Obviously, ASU is going through some dire injuries uh, along the QB position and the offensive line position. So it is a uh, juicy matchup for a USC defense coming off the bye week. To build some confidence going into a big road game against Colorado. And then in two weeks, you have the Notre Dame game. So a a confidence boost game potentially this Saturday for a banged up Sun Devils team. Gerard, with the first road game, I'm interested. What are three things that you are that you want to see out of this weekend? Well, I think as you alluded to, uh, ASU not looking like a real threat to beat USC. You never really know because I've seen those teams in the past where you've got a quarterback change and kind of allows a bad team to really just kind of throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And sometimes there's some stuff out there that they do that you just weren't prepared for. Uh, You know, that Stanford game way back in the Pete Carroll era that, you know, the Stanford, like the worst team ever. And, the backup quarterback and they end up being USC at home. Uh, I don't foresee that happening against ASU, but like I said, you never really know. Sometimes it takes the pressure a bit off the coaching staff and it, it takes the pressure off the players. And at this point, I mean, ASU, I don't know what quarterback they're projected to play. I mean, they were in their like third or fourth string guy that they were playing at the end uh, of last week's game. And he wasn't very good. And so I would say for sure, one thing I want to see is that there's no big pass plays given up by the secondary. I think that's something that we've seen here in the past few games, um, particularly in one-on-one situations where uh, USC's either had a PI uh, with Sierra Wright or Damani Jackson, or they just haven't seen the ball. And and from a ball skill standpoint, you know, Makai Blackman was pretty exceptional. I mean, you remember that, I think it was against Oregon State, he had that over-the-shoulder interception that yeah. was just – one of the best interceptions that I've ever seen. I mean, really difficult ball to track and then a very difficult ball to contort your body to be able to actually make the catch and come down with it. It was crazy. It was a really good play. We have not seen anything like that from USC secondary this season. And we've even seen them drop some pretty Jimmy interceptions. Yeah. So I would like to see some improvement from that standpoint, you know, play to the talent level and, um, 
you know, from a ball skill standpoint, you know, be able to cleanly get some pass breakups and just don't give up any big plays in the passing game. I think that's one thing that you want to see, uh, particularly when you're playing against a quarterback that's just not that great. Um, the other thing I would like to see is, is better eyes from the second level of the defense, particularly in the run game. I think uh, with Rajon Davis, there's been some improvement there from what we saw in the first game. Uh, Mason Cobb kind of took himself out of some plays. Uh, in that first game against San Jose State, I thought there was some improvement there with Rajon Davis. But then I've also seen just in you know the last game or so, kind of reviewing a little more uh, play for play. He and Taka Curtis kind of do and then taking some bad angles and just doing some things where when USC gets super aggressive with the linebacker position, which they got really aggressive. Like first two games, it was crazy how much they were blitzing. I and mean, we talked about this just watching those games like wow they i mean almost every play and that not necessarily the defense that they run that's more of a todd orlando uh tight front type of scheme whereas usc's not really been like that they weren't like that really last season so much um and i haven't really seen an alex grinch defense do that a whole lot just in general i mean they do stunt and they do step and they do do different things in the defensive line but not quite as aggressive as they've been this season at linebacker. And you've seen linebackers, again, take some bad angles, not, not really use their eyes and attack the line of scrimmage and kind of take themselves out of some plays or just take a bad angle and end up, you know, kind of behind a run or something like that. So there have been some big plays given up in the run game because of that. And so I'd like to see uh, just some more solid play. And, and I think, you know, maybe, you know, what we saw against Stanford was USC wasn't quite as aggressive and constantly trying to bring a linebacker every play. So it allows them to read and react a little more and flow with the play a little more. And so I'd like to see that just, you know, some better eyes at the second level with the defense and, um, you know, projecting that this is going to be a blowout game. I think the second team offense move the ball better than you did against Stanford. Cause we saw USC go up, what was it? 49, three or something at halftime. And then, you know, uh, Miller Moss gets the ball and the offense is, is basically second team, third team guys. And they didn't really do much with that. You know, you would like to see them do a little more and be able to move the ball a little more, not as many three and outs, um, you know, get the run game going. Uh, if you get that much in terms of reps with your second team guys and your third team guys, you'd like to see them, you know, play a little better. And, um, you know, there's a little more uh, optimism for the future, you know, with, with some of those players being able to make some plays and what have you. So, um yeah, just see them uh, finish the game maybe a little better with their second team, third team offense. For me, I know a lot of the players, especially the linebackers, have talked about wanting to be the villain on the road and you know embracing that uh, that i i uh, that mentality. No oh, okay. ideology. That's not the right word I was going no, for. That, mentality uh, is a better word. Identity. Maybe identity is what the word I was going for. But the defense, especially those linebackers, want that. And I want to see them kind of uh, embrace that and kind of build off the performance they were able to have against Stanford, especially against a Arizona State offense decimated by injuries. Drew Pine, I think, will be the starter for this one, even though he had the muscle injury late in the game. But against when he started against USC uh, for Notre Dame last year in the Coliseum, they made him look like a bonafide Heisman candidate the way he was carving them up. So, yeah, that kind of goes into your uh, secondary thing, you, uh, the, the secondary uh, the thing you're hoping to see. Thinking, yes. Uh, so for me, that's like 
this guy carved you up last time. If he's a starter, you have to kind of completely shut him down. You you can't let people relive the Drew Pine experience in the Coliseum last year. As banged up as they are, you should be able to get plenty of pressure. Uh, this will be a chance for some young guys to get uh, some road reps. You know, playing on the road is different than playing at home, obviously, especially you know for a young guy. A lot of distractions going on. The travel, the opposing fans, the atmosphere. We don't expect you know a very in, uh, scary atmosphere from from this uh, this crowd. You know, not like Notre Dame or Colorado, which is already sold out. Uh, uh, what's the other big role? Oregon, anything like that. But this will be a good like test uh, primer road trip just to get them get some experience on the road and uh, get some road reps. And this is the fourth game, so maybe we'll start to see you know some guys who is going to redshirt, who is not going to redshirt, and in general, just that defensive swagger that they really took to and embraced in early last season. And obviously with the Oregon State game last year, that was the height of it, and they lost it. I want to see if they that comes out on the road. Not necessarily a super hostile environment, but they will be playing some hostile environment. So I want to see if we start to see that come out a little bit in this first road game, a night game. I think the students will show up for a little bit, but you can basically rip their heart out of this one by halftime. So we'll see if that actually comes to fruition out there in Tempe. Yeah, this is the one thing about this type of USC team. I mean, they can score quickly and they got big playability. So you kind of anticipate that the game could definitely get away from Arizona state very early. And you want to do that. You know, you Mm -hmm. want to make them feel like they have no chance sort of quit to some extent. I thought it was interesting. You know, you do mention drew pine and the sort of revenge factor, you know, the reckoning of USC's defense last year. And there was a lot of criticism that came of the defense from that particular game because Notre Dame's offense just wasn't that great. And it was a nationally televised game. And that was the first time that a lot of people nationally outside the West Coast really started to to look at USC because Caleb Williams was kind of in full Heisman Trophy campaign mode. And so it drew a lot of eyes, and, you know, it was one of those things like, oh, so, you know, USC's defense statistically is they got a lot of turnovers, but they haven't been very good in terms of yards allowed and rushing defense, and they got to see some of that against Notre Dame. Um, And so, yeah, this is obviously not the same level team. and uh, But Pine is – he's resourceful, you know, and he kind of can move and kind of can do some things. And he is the best quarterback that USC's probably played against. I, I don't know. I, I think you could probably make some argument that San Jose state's quarterback is, is better at this point in time. Um, obviously pine didn't win the starting job. So that's, you know, something to be yeah. said for that. Um, you know, you transfer out of Notre Dame uh, to, uh, to go to ASU and then you lose out to, uh, Jaden Rashada uh, as a freshman that's kind of sort of the porthole you know these days but it is uh something that you know the guys that were there uh, last year you know should remember you know guys like Eric Gentry guys like Solomon Bird um you know the the the, the players that were part of that defense that didn't play against Notre Dame particularly well uh should uh, there should be some pride factor you know involved with that and um you know we'll see we'll see what happens with uh with, um, you know, the defense and, again, you know, kind of tightening down on some plays. Uh, 
ASU's got some guys here and there, but yeah, it's it's definitely even from a coaching standpoint, you know, it's um, a new staff, young staff, and um, there was, you know, last year ASU actually played USC pretty tough at home, yep. and, and and we all thought, well, that's not going to happen. I mean, they're you know, brand new team base or. It wasn't a brand new coaching staff. It was still fired head coach. Yeah, turmoil, sanctions coming. You know, there's that was it. That was it. Yeah, it was. It wasn't so much. It was a new coaching staff. It was just the coaching staff trying to pick up the pieces a little bit after Herm Edwards gets fired and some of those coaches and the staff left and and um, you know the players in the locker room. But at the same time, I think they liked some of those coaches and they felt like they were playing for those coaches. And again, it was a sort of nothing to lose um, sort of mentality that, you know, that can make a team kind of dangerous. And they were a a bit dangerous. You know, they were way more competitive than they should have been against USC in that game. And USC, you felt like was sort of playing with their food a little bit like they'd done in some games. I mean, the end of the Stanford game last year, kind of the same way. I mean, USC was clearly the better team. They played better and, three quarters. So it was just basically that last quarter where all of a sudden Stanford kind of turned it on and got a couple of scores. And it was like, all of a sudden um, USC is not blowing them out anymore. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't anticipate that this year, I think, you know, USC is, uh, is, is actually a better team offensively, better team thus far defensively. They haven't really played anybody to, to verify that yet, but it looks that way. And uh, being a road game, I think, is is good focus for them. I don't I don't think you're quite as complacent and uh, all the talk about, you know, this team being terrible, whatever you do kind of come together a bit as a team and everybody sort of locks in being your first road game. So I think that's actually a benefit to to USC in this particular situation. All right, Gerard, as we always end with our topics, it's time to take a look at what happened around college football. We had more of an opportunity to do that with no game on Saturday for USC. So obviously we can watch more college football for around the country, but there were some notable things going on uh, around the, the college football landscape with the scores. Now there wasn't like a super enticing big time. Everyone has to watch this kind of this game uh, for week three, the, the like big game, for a lot of people was the Colorado Colorado State game which was a night game and the game actually was more entertaining than you know I think a lot of people anticipated with Colorado surviving Colorado State in double overtime Gerard did you watch that game I did I watched more of the second half I actually you say you know there was more time to watch college football I probably watched less college football last week than I there have you go. in a long time it was kind of nice like hey USC's not playing I'm gonna get some other stuff done and I just kind of was uh you know checking in on some games a little bit really the ASU game was the only game that I really watched much of um, but I did see you know kind of towards the end there uh with Colorado and Colorado State Colorado State should have really won that game um, which you is should have gone for two, right? Should have gone for two. Listen, listen. I, I, the 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 takeaway is, you know, okay, Colorado. They they beat TCU. You know, who was just in the national championship game. They beat him at home. Okay, wow, amazing game. They look good offensively. I think you know just mm-hmm. the cohesiveness of the team compared to what we saw in that spring game was like night and day. And then they beat Nebraska on the road. And you're like, okay, you know, Nebraska. That's 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 still a decent team, up to power five team. They haven't been super competitive um, in terms of wins and losses, but they don't get blown out a lot. Uh, you know, that's that's still. I mean, that's that's 
better than probably what Colorado would have done the last couple of years. And then they play against Colorado State, which now they're finally looked at as really they're they're the the favorite. You know, Colorado State's the underdog. Colorado's going to win this. They got ESPN there. They're going to look good. You know, they're prepping for their big game against Oregon, and then they've got USC down in a couple games coming up at home. And um, I don't know if they just kind of took their eye off the ball a little bit, got a little cocky, got a little ahead of themselves. Emotional. This was not their best game, and they kind of came back to to earth a little bit, and you kind of saw some of the the issues and the shortcomings of, of the team a little bit. So we're going to see, you know, this week really what Colorado is about, you know, because they're going to be the underdog again. They're going to be playing on the road again, but they're actually playing against a team that's got talent and they're going to be playing in a, in a difficult environment, more difficult than it was at TCU and um, a team that's a bit more well-rounded. And so if they, they beat Oregon, then you're like, wow, okay. I mean, Dion is, absolutely turn this around like this is amazing this is a minor <laughs> miracle this might be just actually a, a flat-out miracle i mean he might need <laughs> football sainthood you know to add it to his hall of fame uh plaque there they'll put a little halo over him on his uh statue in, in the hall of fame uh but you know it might also be like okay yeah you know colorado's better and he's done a good job but they're a ways away from being, you know, a competitive type team. So we'll, we'll see certainly this week with them at Oregon. Um, that's going to be a, an interesting thing. You know, it could be, I mean, hey, according to ESPN, it could be the national championship game, you know, the way they like to blow up <laughs> Oregon and uh, what they've done with Colorado. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw the game and, and the ending. And like I said, you know, Colorado State, and I don't even really know how good Colorado State is. I haven't followed Colorado. It wasn't like I watched the two previous games that Colorado State had played. So I really don't know. I, I mean, I, I would expect just over the past, I don't know, 10 years, Colorado State is not that great. So I would think that, yeah, that was just one of those games where you had Colorado coming in uh, as a favorite, kind of felt like, hey, you know, we, we beat these other two teams are better than Colorado State is. We're going to blow these guys out, and it just didn't work that way because Colorado State was playing with some pride, and they knew, like, hey, you know, I mean, the, the, they were motivated, you know. They were motivated, and I think um, – I don't think, you know, I'm sure Nebraska was motivated too, but TCU not. Like, they're, they, they're, they're down from last year, and I think more people are a little condescend of, like, what they're doing and what have you. And, they, they you know, when you start winning games and you get to a national championship – you know, everybody in the offseason is is looking to see what you're doing, you know, and they start to they start to, to look for tendencies and what have you. And then you've got to replace those great players uh, with other guys. And, and TCU is also a team that I mean, they could have very easily not been in the next. They they barely made the playoffs. I mean, there was there's a lot of argument that, you know, they had quite quite a few games there where they were lucky to be able to win those games. So, I mean, they were like literally, I don't know, probably a handful of points of, of, from, from being a team that's uh, in the national championship to being a team that uh, is uh, not even a, a new year's day bowl, so to speak. So yeah. Um, now we look forward to uh, another team that is a team that a lot of people have high hopes for in Oregon, uh, but it's an Oregon team that also went to Lubbock and they barely beat Texas tech. I mean, Oregon's game at Texas tech was a lot like Colorado's game against Colorado state. It was a game they probably should have lost, really, but they found a way to win. Just like, you know, Oregon found a way to win against Washington State last year. It was kind of a similar sort of, game, sort of game where you're like, okay, you know, Texas Tech is up late in the game and they just got to shut it out and they just sort of fell apart. You know, they cooged it. They cooged it just like the Cougars did 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's uh, one of those things where uh, we don't know how good Oregon is either. You know, like uh, the, the whole Bo Nix uh, Heisman campaign that Phil Knight is pushing as hard as he possibly can. Um, not buying into that one. Uh, not, not, not at this point. But like I said, you know, you beat Colorado and it, you know, it might just propel Oregon into the next stratosphere. I mean, it might be like, you know, top three after that point because everybody's got uh, Colorado uh, so hyped up. Another game, excuse me, another game that went down to the wire was Florida State surviving Boston College, which I don't know if you caught a little bit of this game, Gerard, probably not, but. I was watching this game early because Boston College was, you know, leading for a little bit. Florida State had trouble getting it going. And then eventually their talent started to uh, overcome their sluggish start and started whooping on Boston College. And then I decided to change the game. I forgot what game I put on. I think I put on the Alabama-South Florida game, which we'll talk about in a second. But then I get alerts like, oh, my God, Boston College is like within – uh, two points or something, so I had to change it back. Boston College came all the way back and yet came up short because of penalties. They kept killing themselves with penalties. I believe they set the program record with 18, but Florida State, number three team in the country, almost went down uh, to the, the mighty BC Eagles. Yeah, I didn't watch the game, but that Florida State LSU game Florida State, and we said this the other week, doesn't look like they're completely like a completely upgraded team. They kind of look both those teams look kind of similar to how they looked the year before. So it's like, yeah, Florida State beat LSU and kind of pulled away at the end a little bit, but are they really that much better of a team? I think they're a little better at the quarterback position. They've got a little more maturity there, but just overall, I, I don't know that they're like some great team. Three is way too high for them. Um, and they're going to have these kind of games. And then now they got to play at Clemson. And so that's going to be interesting because Clemson loses their opener to Duke. Oh my gosh. You know, uh, Dabo has uh, got to be fired. And, you know, it's kind of uh, everybody's like running around and, and Clemson certainly has slipped you know, the past couple years, uh, and, and maybe that's just too much coaching turnover, what have you. But they have slipped despite still recruiting very well. Um, now they get Florida State at home. They had some issues with, uh, I think it was Southern Charleston they were playing, and like early in the game, that game was kind of close. And then they completely blew it open at the end. So it'll be interesting to see how Florida State plays on the road against Clemson. Clemson, I think, is still dangerous because they're, you know, that you play at home and you've got talent, you can beat anybody. And when you're motivated, and that's the thing, it's like when you're Florida State, you're coming in and you're the underdog and people aren't really thinking you're going to be competitive. That's that's one thing, you know, that's sort of like an easy sort of motivation for the coaching staff. But when you are the school with the target on your back and going on the road and playing against a team that's got talent. It's hard, man, because those guys that are undisciplined, that have been making mistakes and, and blew it against Duke, those guys, all of a sudden, they're locked in and they're playing like their first round picks, man. And it's like, damn, you know, like, how come we didn't get that team to play against Duke? You know, you're going to get a team that's motivated that, that you know, you got guys on the team that were recruited by Florida State. So, yeah, it's a little bit different. So this is going to be a much more difficult game uh, for Florida State to be able to win. We're going to see a little more of, I think, what Florida State is about LSU is kind of meh. 
I think, you know, it's like Jaden Daniels is basically their entire offense. And that's how it was last year. It's like they mm-hmm. haven't gotten any better. I don't know what's going on with Brian Kelly and that whole system. But, yeah, they're just they didn't really seem to improve a whole lot from last year. But, again, I think Florida State's improved a little bit, mostly at the quarterback position. Will it be enough to uh, win at the home, uh, win at home against Clemson? Because then it's kind of like downhill. You know, there's a couple games here and there where, you know, you got to watch out. You don't get complacent. But uh, their schedule sets up pretty well for them. The other game that I'm actually just going to throw these two together because they're very much on the opposite end of the spectrum. Washington absolutely destroyed Michigan State, and we talked about Michigan State and you know the turmoil they're going through. Looks like they're officially firing uh, their head coach, whose name I'm blanking on, Mel Tucker. They're officially starting the process of firing him. So that's going to be a free-for-all for their – prospects and their uh, guys that are going to transfer and we'll see what happens with that 30-day window opening but Washington absolutely went in there and kicked their butt I'm not surprised with all everything that's going on there and then on the flip side Alabama survived South Orlando South Florida South Orlando with the not even a real school <laughs> South Florida and well, the fighting Todd that, Orlando's is what I was going to say the fighting Todd <laughs> Orlando's Leading that defense, they barely survived without any sort of quarterback in what I called the huddle game because there was a monsoon going on. The cameras had to get out of there, so we just got the uh, the old-school kind of huddle film look from a terrible angle from above and then a wide, wide angle from within the concourse. And I actually wish that that joke got more traction because I was actually proud of that uh, with, the, with the huddle – with a game brought to you by huddle, Gerard. That's a good comment. I didn't see that comment. I would have liked it if I would have seen it. <laughs> well, thanks. That that you're you saying you would have liked it means the world to me. I didn't see all of this game, and this is another game I was like I watched kind of early on in Alabama. You're talking about Alabama? Yeah, I was watching. It was terrible. Alabama struggle and you know new quarterback. Uh, they had uh, the kid out of uh, Torrey Pines down there in San Diego. Um, Buckner. I, Buckner. Yeah, Buckner. Yeah, yeah. And not the answer. <laughs> they don't have an Greg answer. Greg illegitimate son. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, but they just, uh, just, they just offensively, just don't have any, anything that really like excite. I mean, they've got all those running backs. They've got a four-star, five-star, laden offensive line. Bunch of three hundred forty-pound dudes that just look like they could just lean on you and get three hundred yards rushing. And yet they're just, I mean, they, they, they're trying to stay balanced and they just don't have a quarterback that can throw the ball consistently. They, I, I think they got to go back with Milrow because at least he can run the ball um, yeah. and, and can do something with his legs. And maybe you get a little more RPO and, and what have you. But, yeah, they clearly just don't have um, a guy uh, back there. And, and, and their receiving threats are, are kind of minimal. I still like their defense. They've got some dudes on defense. And that's you know how you end up winning one of these games. It's a slugfest, but they play an offense um, that can get ahead of them, and they're going to play. I think Ole Miss this weekend. Wayne is going to. I mean, you know, if you can get some big plays and get on them early, it's going to be tough. Like Alabama's going to be in a bad position. They're not a team that can get down early and come from behind. They just they don't seem to have that type of offense offensive potential. So the Jackson Dart Michael Trigg USC connection. Um, might be kind of interesting to see. You know, this is the kind of t- team, this is the kind of game that, you know, Ole Miss is 
um, they kind of sneak up on you sometimes. This is like where, you know, Ole Miss and Texas A&M's of the SEC start licking their chops, you know, because they see a, a very beatable Alabama team um, out there. So, yeah, this is a – it's not a great Alabama team. And it's interesting to see how they can get to this point, you know, where they just don't have a quarterback that can really – throw the ball efficiently, you know, even with the transfer portal there. I mean, that's a good example and lesson to learn that I mean, they knew what they had, you know, coming back after Bryce Young was, was leaving the NFL. I mean, they kind of knew what the situation was going to be. And even with the transfer portal and, and everything else, you know, recruiting at the high school level, they weren't able to find a guy that could step in and, and be a guy for them immediately. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, even with the transfer portal there, that cannot that's not always going to be a safety net for you. Unlike last week's week three, there wasn't a lot of high-profile marquee games, but there are going to be some uh, fun games on the slate this week. And as you mentioned, uh, FSU at Clemson this week, Colorado at Oregon, UCLA at Utah. Get to see those two teams go at it. And then I guess the big one on everyone's calendar, Ohio State at Notre Dame. I think we're going to learn a lot about each of those teams uh Gerard obviously Ohio State kind of in a QB kind of a QT, QB vortex with two kind of guys with McCord and Devin Brown and then Notre Dame you know I feel like we haven't really heard much about Notre Dame since their opener against Army when everyone gave Sam Hartman the uh the Heisman for Maybe. week zero and then now now we get to see a real test for them and see kind of what what what's what with the fighting Irish and even with the Ohio State Buckeyes, see uh, see what they're going to do out there uh, in South Bend. Yeah, if you're Ohio State, you want to see McCord just, like, come through and be the guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, two quarterbacks sometimes equals no quarterback, so that is uh, a bit worrisome for, for the Buckeyes. And then on the other side, you know, can Hartman be, like, the guy? Like, he's looked like the guy. Um, he kind of has a swagger after beating some teams that are not great. You know, this would be, you know, a big win for them. And it would be like it's some verification that, okay, the offense is definitely improved. Like it's, they're much better offensively, which, you know, potentially could make them a, a college football playoff team. Uh, but that's the big question. You know, they haven't really played anybody with, uh, with a good amount of talent on the defensive side of the ball. And so this is going to be the first game where they're kind of pressed, where they got to make some plays. And, and, and Hartman specifically has got to make some plays. So we're going to see if they're able to do that. Um, another intriguing game, like you said, UCLA at Utah, um, you know, UCLA took it to Utah last year. You know, that was the game where Kyle Winningham came around and said, uh, that was one of the most physical teams that we've played. Like we take pride in being a physical team. UCLA whooped our ass and they were physical. They were more physical than us. And, um, I think, you know, with UCLA, um, it's different because now you're playing at Rice-Eccles, and that is just a different Utah team at Rice-Eccles. But you don't have Cameron Rising, potentially. So Utah hasn't been amazing. You know, they had the strolls against Baylor, and um, offensively they haven't looked great. So if they're, you know, you've got your backup quarterback there, uh, it's going to be it, – it could be an interesting game. You know, it, it's like UCLA is going to potentially make their mistakes – um, they've got Dante Moore there. He's kind of their future. That's a freshman quarterback on the road playing against an environment that is just nowhere near what the Rose Bowl looks like. 
<laughs> ever. <laughs> so that in itself, you know, elevation, etc. There's there's going to be some stuff, you know. I don't know what the weather's going to be like. You never know. Utah, you start to get in late September, early October. I mean, shoot, it could be snowing there. Uh, they get some weird stuff going on there. So that's um that's it's a tough game, and I certainly wouldn't pick UCLA to win. But like I said, you know, UCLA is interesting. They they're they're an interesting team with a system. They've got a quarterback that can make some plays, and Utah just hasn't been blowing anybody away. Um, and so without you know rising there and anything to really hang your hat on offensively, you feel like it could it could be a close game, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or at least closer than it normally would be maybe if you had rising there. And he was dishing, and he was sort of being that guy uh, that uh, can, uh, can kind of make something happen out of nothing. All right, Gerard, here we are at the end. And we're about to hit three hours. Now, I'm at a point where I kind of only want to do one listener question. Listen, you're the host, and you've got to stay there until after midnight to edit. So I can't put any kind of peer pressure on you to do every question that has been sent in. But I have to remind you on – or at least on the behalf of the fans that – they have gone to the trouble of sending in questions after formulating these questions. And this is what we do the podcast for. We don't do this for ourselves. We do this for the fans. And on that note too, I can also just save them for next week as well. Uh, But I'm going to go with my gut on this one because looking at these questions, I know it's going to add at least another hour to this show. Uh, And I don't feel like waiting to edit a four hour episode. Off a of bye week? Gerard, it's three hours off a of bye week. How did we get here? What have I done what? with my life? Have no. you made your decision for Christ? I just picked a random one. That's how I feel right now. I feel like Alex That's Baldwin. probably the best one you could have picked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously. That or the bear one, just you know, making the bear sound. It was, would have probably been okay for you, too. <laughs> That's what Chris is going to sound like as he's leaving the studio at uh, yeah. 1.45 a.m. Just a reminder, you can email us at podcastabcfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite in the subhead, and it will go to my inbox, and I will get it on the show. Ironically, I cannot guarantee it will be read (laughs) because we're in the situation that we are in. But I'm going to do one question. I'm going to do it from Steven, who DM'd me actually last week as we were recording, and I wasn't able to get to his question. But – I just wanted to uh, read his little shout out before I get to the question. Helium and Cilantro Boy podcasts are the best ones on the site. Love the insight you bring out of Garage and Shotgun. Brings a lot on his own. Really appreciate your personality and the value you bring to both of those shows every week. Thanks again. Reading that, I just realized that was just a message for me. But here we are. Here we are. Steven asked, Gerard, clearly Miller Moss is the current backup QB for this Trojan team. He's great, big big fan of his. However, if there's a potential for either he or Malachi Nelson to win the starting job for the rest of the 2024 season, wouldn't it be in the best team's interest to get Malachi some game reps in 2023? It just struck me that the Trojans sort of treaded water for the second half against Stanford. I was hoping Miller would play in the third and Malachi would play in the fourth in that circumstance. Instead, and interested to hear what you think, especially in light of the conversation about playing star freshmen when current recruits are watching and wondering if this Trojan staff 
is willing to give immediate playing time to highly rated freshmen when there's an opportunity. P.S. Love the fight on mariachis. Thanks, Steve in Tuscaloosa. So, do you think it was weird that Malachi did not play in the second half against Stanford? Shouldn't they be giving him reps? No, no. I think, A, uh, the offense didn't look great uh, against Stanford with Miller Moss there. It was a bit anemic, and it kind of turned on a little bit there at the end. You had some uh, nice runs by uh, Quentin Joyner and um, a couple of plays made here and there. But I think it was good to just try to get as much run with Miller Moss at that point in time. First and foremost, he's your second-team quarterback. So in terms of install, he's going to be a part of that process. Your third-team quarterback is going to be your scout team quarterback. So he's not necessarily going to know the offense that you had installed for the Stanford game. Um, Second, I think with Malachi, that decision of redshirting may have already been made. And so you want to see what Miller can do from an evaluation standpoint with more time and more snaps. Because otherwise you're, you're splitting that a bit. And, you know, you're only talking about so many snaps, even though it's two quarters, it's really not that many snaps. So this was maybe an opportunity to go, okay, now we actually get to see without it being just garbage time, even though the score was what it was, um, Stanford's going to still be playing hard and we still have the opportunity to throw the ball a little bit. You know, you get latter parts of the fourth quarter and you're up that much comes a little harder to, to, to validate. Um, your offense throwing the ball downfield. You know, it's it becomes more difficult. People start to make criticism. Oh, you guys were up already and you're just trying to pile on. And, you know, that's not good sportsmanship. So you really, you know, in that earlier part of the third quarter, you're able to run your offense as you would normally would. And because Miller Moss was the second team quarterback, he knew what the offense was. And he, he's been a part of that sort of game plan. Uh, Malachi Nelson, maybe not so much. And so it's it's really like, do you throw Malachi Nelson in there and give him just some junk reps at the very, very end of the game? Um, there would maybe be some controversy that would stir from that because Miller Moss had not played well. Uh, and you don't want to say he mm-hmm. hadn't played well, but the offense as a whole. Just I think the offensive line was not helping him out. Yeah, and the running game wasn't really – it just, you know, it just looked a bit um, average. You know, it looked very mid and you would have liked to seen the offense <laughs> continue to play uh, better with the better sense of urgency, just to, just a little more clicky, clicky and getting down the field. Obviously, it's hard to compare it to what it was in the first half with Caleb Williams and just everything was going, going, going. Um, you're not going to expect that level of play, but you would have liked to seen a little better level of play. And then maybe you could feel like, hey, you know what? Uh, Miller Moss, you know, he played well, he looked good. They're going to give Malachi a look now just because they want to give him a look. But the way they played in that third quarter, if you pull Miller Moss, Ellis said maybe you can tr- create some controversy where controversy doesn't exist. And it's like, oh, they pulled him because he wasn't playing well. And that's why they put Malachi Nelson in there. And then people start asking going into the next week, the bye week, is Malachi Nelson going to be your second team guy? Is there a competition there? Maybe that's just not what Lincoln Riley wants to create. You know, he wants to have some uh, a semblance of of uh, of peace and sort of a pecking order, if you will, and feels like, hey, Miller Moss has earned those reps and he needs to get those reps. Um, now, going forward, and you, you know, you had uh, that, you know, where you get two quarters. If you get a game again where you're blowing out a team like much at halftime, you know, maybe maybe there's a chance. I, I would honestly say, you know, you want to 
maybe have um, sort of a, a setup where they could they could take reps like a series each series you know if you have that much time to do it like you put miller moss in and it's like okay next week we had this already set up it didn't matter how the game was going to go we were up you know uh, it's a 42 to nothing and uh you know we already told miller like hey we, we want to get malachi a look we just want to get him some reps in a game and he's healthy now so we were going to do that from the start just to sort of squash any sort of, well, you know, Miller didn't play that well. And Melkai played. I mean, you still open yourself up to that potentially. But if you feel like it's necessary to get Melkai some of those reps um, earlier, like, again, it's it's one of those things like it doesn't if, if you're just going to give him trash reps at the end of the game. Like, does it really matter if he's just handing the yeah. ball off? Is that is that really that big a deal? I mean, yeah, you're taking snaps and yeah, you're making reads. But if it's like, hey, listen, you just got to hand the ball off. We can't really throw it with you know six minutes left in the game and we're up fifty six to three. <laughs> like we can't. We just it's not going to be a good look if we have you throwing the ball all over the field. I know the argument is well, the defense should still play defense at that point, but it nevertheless it's still going to be criticized. So um, you want to get him reps earlier. Maybe that would be something if you rotated them per series, you would avoid the whole well. Oh, is is it all of a sudden like this quarterback competition that's opened up again for the second team quarterback, which. You know, I mean, there should always be competition, right? But I think, you know, that that's uh, maybe a narrative that uh, Lincoln Riley doesn't want to necessarily start because these guys are going to be in a quarterback competition coming in at the end of the year. And I do agree to some extent, like you do want to get a little bit of evaluation with Malachi Nelson, but that has to happen in the third quarter. Also, I think, you know, he's he is coming off that soldier surgery, and I still think he's sort of still getting – back to 100%. So I also think that's a factor too where you know they don't want to put him in there when he's not 100 100% healthy and maybe take a, a random hit or something. So I Which just is another reason why maybe you you come to the conclusion before the beginning of the season. Hey, yeah. we really want to 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 redshirt and that's kind of the plan and we want to just stick with the plan unless something crazy happens. And, you know, we, we might need you to, to actually play. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes these things are, are, are kind of talked about behind the scenes before the season even starts. And you just want to kind of stick to that plan. Yeah, and uh, it is interesting because I do kind of want to see uh, Jake Jensen play a little bit. And if you put Jake Jensen in at the end, you know, over Malachi Nelson, then you have another sort of like controversial talking point, like why isn't Malachi Nelson playing? But I do honestly want to see Jake Jensen just like play a little bit. I just want to see him throw the ball around because we've heard he's, he's actually, you know, a decent quarterback. And I kind of want to see, kind of want to see him in action. We haven't seen him in action. Uh, Gerard. That's what, yeah, that's what yeah, I'm saying. We, we haven't seen anything. I mean, we haven't even really seen anything. a lot of action of him uh, in the, the practice spring. periods that we've been able to have and see, yeah, in spring or anything else. So, yeah, he's a guy that, I mean, kind of low-key had a lot of hype uh, when he when he committed to USC from the people that had coached him and, and been around him and were like, hey, man, this dude's like, he's a dude. Like, this is a huge get for USC. And it was like, okay, he's kind of like a depth guy for USC from our standpoint, but we didn't really watch much of him either. So, yeah, I mean, th- there's an argument even for that. I mean, you've got uh, – when you've got four quarterbacks that are scholarship quarterbacks, it's tough for all those guys to, to get reps. Usually it's three and um, you have a, a solid walk on. That's the fourth guy. Uh, but that's, that's the one thing which, you know, hopefully the defense is 
getting better because of that. You've got two guys on the scout team that can throw the ball, that have decent arms, uh, that are decently athletic, that can give you looks. You know, that's where you really get hurt if you don't have depth at the quarterback position because you don't have anybody there that's either got a division one arm or he's got some athleticism and you're playing against a quarterback that can run. All of that stuff, you know, that those are the things the scout team quarterbacks and the scout team offense as a whole give your first team defense its best look during the week. So there's no excuses from that standpoint. USC is seeing some decent quarterback talent, certainly, um, when uh, they're going against the scout team. All right, Gerard, that is where I'm stopping it. I'm calling it. I'm waving the white flag like USC waving the right flag for Jalen Harvey. I'm waving the white flag. Please have mercy on my soul. I don't know how we got here to a three-hour and ten-minute podcast off a bye week when we said there was literally nothing to talk about. And yet here we are. I feel like it's NIL. I mean one one person, one person we cannot blame is Armand Blunt. (laughs) That is very true. He had the quickest – segment topic in the history of composite two-star recruits he's not even going to make he's not even going to make the uh the timestamps, gerard that's not, that's how quick it went i'm not even putting him on there I'm not even putting him on there just forget about it he shouldn't so, even had a segment <laughs> that's true but it was just there already from last week i figured why why not why not so gerard we have reached the end it is almost uh thursday it is uh, going to be a interesting edit, but luckily we had – it was pretty smooth, so it shouldn't take me that long. But that is the end. We When we come back, we will have a road game to talk about, USC versus Arizona State this weekend. I'm going to Tempe, Arizona, so I hopefully uh, it's not too hot and I don't melt on the field. So with that, I'm Chris. That is Gerard. This has been another – episode of composite two star recruits i don't know how we got here at three hours but here we are but we hope we catch you next time on composite two star recruits that leopard sucks